0: Welcome to Inside Groove, the only motorsports show where super modifieds are king. Methanol is aromatic and the drivers carry their balls in a bag. Inside Groove is powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace and communications industries. Here's your host and fellow superholic, race chaser media's Tom Baker.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Groove The Supermodified Podcast This is episode 64 If you're counting My name is Tom Baker I am the host of the show And if this is your first time Listening to Inside Groove Thank you so much for tuning in And I hope you enjoy what you hear um, You can access All of our archived shows If you want to go back And listen to shows from the past and as of this very day it just got even easier to do that Um, and I'll tell you about that a little bit later. If this is your 64th time listening to Inside Groove I love you and thank you for being a super fan and uh, for just uh, your unwavering support of this show. Um, We've had a, a week or two ...between shows here, and I kind of feel the need to explain just a bit that the podcasts that I do, this show and the Mainly Modifieds podcast, are shows that I'm doing because there aren't really a lot of other shows in the category, so to speak, in terms of uh, coverage of the divisions... And I love them. I just love the supers and the modifieds. And so um, these shows for me, because they're not live, these shows for me are an opportunity to really look at quality over quantity. And obviously even within that, some shows are going to be better than others. You just never know how uh, something's going to turn out when you start it. And that is both a blessing and a curse in a way. Um, but I need to, uh, give you a little bit of background on this show, because as you all know, from seeing the post online now, this show is a show I've wanted to do for a long, long time. I just haven't really known quite how to do it. And I really haven't, I haven't been sure I could do it and do it justice Jimmy Champagne was my first racing hero. And I realized in thinking back, in preparing for the show, I realized that September 4th, 1982, is still pretty raw for me. So I decided that if I was going to do this show, First of all, I would never do a show as a tribute to anyone without involving other people who were closer to that person or knew that person in ways that I didn't. Because as much as I do enjoy telling my own stories and thinking about and talking about supermodified racing from my own perspective, I have never done any show with the idea that I am the reason somebody listens to the show, if i can't if I can't entertain somebody, if I can't inform or educate or in some way contribute to whatever it is that the show is talking about in a meaningful way, I'm not interested. But that being said, um, I still have to be the conduit, and I wasn't sure if I could. And, of course, you know, again, I've always wanted to do this. Well, a short while back, um, Robert Metcalf, who I really just appreciate so much as a friend and a supporter of this show, um, Robert uh, contacted Cerise Murata, Jimmy's daughter, about doing uh, a show and... She was very agreeable to doing it, and Robert did that and then told me that he did it now uh, I, <laughs> I was a little shocked um, and I and i I put this out there um, to say that I was on on the one hand really thankful for Robert doing that and thankful that. Uh, Cerise was agreeable to doing the show, but then on the other hand, I didn't know if I was ready. I didn't know if I could do the show. I didn't know if I. I mean, I don't. I don't I, you know, I, I, w- I don't want to um, do a show where, you know, I end up blubbering uh, all over <laughs> And it just. Um, this one was just a different thing for me. And so I had to think about it. I had to pray about it. I had to just sort of put it away for a little while. And then my thought about doing it started to become a little bit more of a motivation to do it. And then it was, well, okay, but who else, who else, could I talk to? And of course the list would be a mile long of people who knew Jimmy raced with Jimmy, worked with Jimmy, whatever family of Jimmy's. Um, And you know, you, you could end up with a three or four or five hour marathon, or it could be a series of shows or, you know, it really, this is, I realized that, you know, I've always thought about how important Jimmy was to me and I've always known that he had tons of other fans, but I think in the process of putting this together and just having conversation with different people about it, I think I realized the, the true weight of Jimmy's legend and the true impact that he had on the Oswego Speedway and super modified racing and really short track racing in the uh, on the East Coast, Midwest, you know, the side of the Mississippi in general. Um, and even beyond that, because it wasn't long ago that there was a post put up on a Facebook page of an eight-ball sprint car that had been found and purchased. And for all the world, for just a moment, because a lot of us had heard that, that Jimmy's eight-ball sprint car was gone um and somehow i had completely missed that jim paternoster had that and had restored it and that was ages ago so somehow that completely got by me and several other of us too because when we looked at this eight ball sprint car at first it was like oh my gosh what did we find and then of course as i looked at it i said this is not jimmy's car the cage didn't look the same. Um, the 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 gentleman who owned the car had talked about the builder of the car, and I said, "I know that's not who built Jimmy's." I had never heard of that guy. Jimmy's car was a Lloyd car, I think. And so, um, as uh, I think, I think actually it was Camden. I think Camden and I went back and forth about it for a while, and I said, "No, this is not Jimmy's car." But then you start. To think about, well, my gosh, this car is—I didn't even remember where it was. I don't know if it was Montana or it was—it was somewhere over there. Anyway, um, and you start thinking about the 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 magnitude of Jimmy's of Jimmy's light because here's this guy who's in this car ran on pavement, which was the other thing for me that made me realize this couldn't be Jimmy's car. Um, You I mean, here's this guy all all the way over there, wherever it was. And this guy made, you know, painted his car up like Jimmy Champlain. And so you, it makes you very aware of how far Jimmy's legend and and his accomplishments, how many people were impacted and uh, how many people loved him and loved what he did and marveled at him. And so how do you, in, in an hour or two hours or even three hours, how do you capture all of that you know um, so what I in the end I had three people that I was supposed to talk to that I had thought would give us a very well-rounded sort of picture of who Jimmy was at the track on the track off the track away from the track Um, one of them Had to uh, cancel at the last minute. Just decided not to do it. I understand that. That's fine. Um, So here's what we have. This show, we're going to talk to Camden Proud in a minute from Norway. Uh, We have a little bit of a Swiggo Speedway business to talk about. And I wanted to kind of balance the show with a little bit of kind of lighter fare, if you will. Um, so Camden is with us. He'll be with us next segment. But then we're going to talk to Ed Close. Ed was Jimmy's longtime modified car owner. 69 um, car that Jimmy drove for so many years uh, was Ed Close's car. The original 69 was built uh, by Ed and his his team. Um and Ed also built a very, very radical super for its time. And boy, did he give me some history and some information on that. I think there'll probably be some things that I would assume a lot of you wouldn't know about that car and about, uh, the inspiration for it and, and, uh, Jimmy's interest in it. Uh, we all saw Jimmy hot lap it a couple of times, but, uh, I obviously we didn't have any idea of why he was interested in what was going on, but, uh, and Ed, Ed uh, definitely uh, captured Jimmy, I think, as, as a man and as a teammate and as a, a driver that uh, drives for you from a car owner's point of view. Um, you know, and uh, I hope you appreciate uh, that interview. And also, of course, uh, we, we talked with Cerise, and Cerise was just very sweet and very giving um, and talked a lot about uh, Jimmy as a dad. Cerise was 10 Um when Jimmy lost his life on September 4th, 1982. And um, no, I did not uh, ask her to share uh, that night with the audience, though she did with me uh, off mic. And I can tell you that when she shared with me off mic, um, it just made me feel better about not asking her to share on mic. I just think there are some things that should be left to personal memory. And, um, but I can tell you that, uh, it was, um, not a, obviously not an easy night as it wasn't for any of us. Um, so those are our two guests and I'll share, uh, as much as I can about, uh, my memories of Jimmy and, and whatever. Um, so, we're going to do a tribute to Jimmy Champagne on this show. Um, I feel like this is not necessarily um, a finished work, but it may be a conversation starter, in it perhaps... Um, as we have future guests on who were a part of Jimmy's life and his career or raced with him or were fans or were whatever at, the, you know, we can con- kind of continue uh, to, to talk about Jimmy, but I just felt like this was the right time. We're just at the end of the season. Um, everything's kind of put away for the year. And uh, I had seen some posts about Jimmy that had come up online in in some of the pages and such. And it just seemed like, uh, this was the the right time to do this, so um, this is our our tribute to Jimmy uh, before we go to break though i I want to uh, talk about a couple of the members of our super modified family who 've experienced uh, some some uh, heavy events in their lives recently, and I wanted to make mention of them. Jack Patrick lost his dad uh, Father Donald died on Monday. Of This week um, I want to just take a moment to uh, say thank you to all of you who um, shared condolences with Jack. Uh, I remember losing my dad in 1999. I miss him to this day uh, and I live for him every day trying to be half the man that, that he was. So Jack I um, Prayers, buddy. Um, condolences. Uh, we're thinking about you. Uh, we're, we're, we're definitely think about, thinking about you in this time, and uh, we wish you and your family uh, strength and comfort. And uh, and we are very very sorry for your loss. And then I found out just yesterday, saw it on Facebook. I don't know how I missed this, and I am just so embarrassed. that that i did uh i nobody had shared it with me and and facebook is weird You, you see posts and you don't see posts or whatever but um terry strong has been diagnosed with stage four mantle cell lymphoma and i know that there was a fundraiser i think over the weekend it may have been or recently at um the lanes lighthouse lanes um terry terry and i go back to when terry and pat strong uh came to oswego speedway as car owners and uh that's a long time ago and terry and i worked together for a little while at James uh, jamesway uh, which was uh a retail store that uh was around oswego for a number of years kind of a smaller walmart um and uh I consider Terry a, a very, very close friend along with Pat. Uh, we, we, uh, we took a, they, they were nice enough to, uh, carry me along when they went to Michigan one year on, on the Isma Michigan swing. Um, we did Kalamazoo and then Berlin and I was announcing the shows, um, and they were nice enough to allow me to ride with them and, uh, just tag along and, uh, driving a super or driving, a, a, a being in a vehicle with a super modified on an open trailer in the back, driving through, uh, somewhere in downtown Michigan at about one or two in the morning was, uh, was a really interesting experience. Uh, Had a great time with them and uh, have always remembered that. And then, of course, uh, I helped Keith Champagne when he decided he wanted to go racing. Uh, Pat and Terry were the first ones I called, and they took a chance on Keith and and brought the Champagne name back to the Oswego Speedway. And um, of course, Keith still races there, and I will uh, always appreciate uh, Pat and Terry as friends. And when I saw this post, I was stunned. Um, Terry, I I am praying for you every day. Um, you will be on my prayer list every single day. Uh, I know that you are strong because you married a strong, and uh, but you're strong because uh, of who you are. You're a fighter. You, you have the, the strength to, to, uh, to fight this, and um, I, I am wishing you well. If, if you need anything, if there is anything that I can do for you, um, I'm saying it publicly. Uh, you just reach out, and I will do my best to make it happen. Um, we all need to be praying for Terry and just uh, flooding her with well wishes And uh, keeping in touch with her and uh, just keeping her spirits up here. So, um, Terry, God bless you and God bless Jack Patrick as well. And I want to end this little um, segment with uh, some good news, which is that uh, Jerry Rich, who was uh, in intensive care for a while, is out of the hospital. Thank God um so we uh, we all hope that uh, Jerry will be right back uh in his post in the pit area um in 2021 i've always said that uh, uh Jerry can always be bought for a beer um and uh uh i say that with the highest degree of <laughs> respect and, uh, and and humor uh so we love you, Jerry, and we uh, we're glad you're better, and we're we're looking forward to seeing you back at the Fast Five Eights next year. Uh, and with that, we are going to step aside. Uh, we're going to come back with Camden Proud, and I pre-taped this. Sound will be a little bit different, um, so just be prepared for that because uh, I had to talk to Norway. Uh, so we zoom, and then we'll come back, and uh, we'll hear from Ed Close, and then uh, from Cerise. So uh, what I hope will be a very special inside groove for all of you Um, will continue right after this.
2: Victory Custom Trailers is the place to go for your next new or used trailer or coach. Being personally involved in the racing community allows Victory to fully understand what racers need in a trailer. They have over 200 coaches and trailers in stock for a variety of industries, and they can serve anyone in the continental U.S. If you're looking for something custom, they can assist in designing a trailer to fit your needs. Check out their entire inventory online at VictorCustomTrailers.com.
1: Welcome back to Inside Groove, Uh, a special show indeed today. A tribute to Jimmy Champagne, uh, the legend, my first racing hero, Um, and we're going to get to that. We've got Ed Close coming up, Uh, but first we're going to... Go all the way. We're going outside. Look, at this is a worldwide show now, folks. We're going literally beyond the borders of the U.S. of A. Uh, to bring in this next guest. You know him. You love him. It's Camden Proud, live from Norway. Uh, how's it going over there, Cam?
3: It's going great. Uh, sitting in the office and waiting to see the Northern Lights tonight again, I hope.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that will be, uh, that will be awesome. Um, and being able to, uh, the, the pictures that you've, you've sent uh, with the aurora borealis have been just spectacular. Um, and as a matter of fact, have um, moved me to the point where, um, and I, where Cam and I are, are doing this on video, um, I can, uh, Cam will be interested to, to see this here in a minute um, as soon as I can pull it up. Um, Cam can see this through the camera that, uh, uh, one of his pictures is now my background on my home screen for the phone. Cause it's just so spectacular. Um, it's, it's quite a change from being in the U S isn't it? Can you spend a minute or two just talking about kind of the differences? And it actually, first of all, it's, it's about 20 minutes of noon here. Um, oh, yeah. and it's like
3: after four or something or six or over there, right? Yeah, it's just after four thirty. It's it'll be dinner time here soon and you know, it is it is really different. Again, it's a whole it's a whole nother world over here and that probably sounds cliche, but it, it literally is nothing like I've ever experienced before. So uh very cool time of year with polar night approaching, full darkness, blue light and also the northern lights. So there's there's lots going on and it's just a uh, beautiful country, breathtaking views no matter what time of year. I really enjoy it here. Yeah that's uh, it's pretty amazing honestly uh to think
1: about what uh the scenery that you you've shown in the pictures is just breathtaking um so you're over there with uh, the girlfriend and now uh, a little bit of a vacation and so um yeah. but but while you're gone uh news doesn't stop and we've got a couple of interesting things to talk about first of all uh we're going back to the future a little bit um I, I, there were, there was a period of time where the nemo lights and the Niva cars, midgets were, were a big part of the Oswego speedway and not just classic, but they, they would come I think a couple three times during the year, some years. And uh we're now gonna see a return to that, at least for uh classic weekend two, if if you will, classic sixty five. Sixty-five. Sixty-five, Labor Day weekend. Uh, that is going to throw me way off. Uh, Classic 65, Labor Day weekend, the Nemo Lights coming back on Saturday to be the companion for the, the Modifieds. Now, my first question is, it the, the press release made it sound like those were the only two divisions on the card that day. Is that true, or is, are the um, – the 350 Supers or SBS or whatever, are they? is
3: there any Supers at all, or is it just those two? We don't even have anything set other than the Modifieds and NEMA right now. So yeah, I would I say it's to be announced and subject to change. We'll see what happens. Last year we had the 350s on Saturday, and then obviously that never happened. Or this year, I should say. We were right. supposed to, and, and that didn't happen, and it was just the Supers and SBS on Sunday. So I would assume we would – pair the 350s with NEMA on Saturday and kind of have like a wing deal along with the Modifieds and then the Supers and the, the S V Sunday. And, of course, the Super Stocks Friday, too. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a big weekend for sure. Uh, the NEMA lights
1: and the NEMA midgets coming back. I love those cars. Uh, they always put on a great show in Oswego, three, four, five wide. Uh, you know, you always get one or two of the super modified guys to jump in them, too. So we'll have to see who we might be able to con into uh, getting into a
3: car next year. Maybe uh, Camden Proud, perhaps? <laughs> that would be nice. I know Joey Payne's done it a lot. He's had some good runs. And, uh, you know, I was reading in the NEMA press release the last time they were there on Classic Weekend was 15 years ago. And it also brings back the Marvin Rifkin Memorial. And the last time the Midgets competed on Classic Weekend, Chris Purley won over Lusicone. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Quite the. Uh... Quite the, uh, fairing, um, Chris Perley and a midget. Um, th- th- that's, that's just a recipe for some fun. Um, and Bentley used to run them too a little bit, but he was always too big for them, literally. Um, uh, you know, he was too tall and could never quite, you know, get so they're they're kind of cards that I, I think are built more for uh jockey sized folks, um, you know, smaller guys. Uh, yeah. or at least not not such heavy. Bentley was big and bulky and just, you know, squeezed into him, but he ran for Gene Angelillo and a couple of other guys and um, you know, and had some great runs. And I'm sure there have been some other I think Mike Barnes maybe might have gotten into a midget for a while. I think he had a midget for a while yeah, actually. He had it for a long time. Yeah yeah so um so there've been a few uh so we'll see what comes up between now and next class of weekend but that's uh that's a great announcement and then I saw last night online um that uh pat wallace's son josh. And yes, they are a relation to Ronnie Wallace, uh, the legend, who raced uh in the sixties, seventies and uh into the early eighties at a swiggo. Uh Josh gonna make his debut in the SBS division next year in the car that uh Craig Harris last drove, the
3: 04 uh, O four car. That was that totally came from left field for me. I just logged on to Facebook and, and saw the pictures saying yeah, there was. in new the garage. So I said, Wow, that's that's cool I went to high school with josh and I think he's a year older than me I think the grade above me okay. And um, didn't really know actually that he had any interest in, in racing but that's that's great that's awesome to see another member of the Wallace family uh, making their debut at the speedway and you know our 11th rookie in the, in the SBS class for next year so uh it's that's that's just awesome it keeps getting better and better as, as far as the the SBS class goes for 2021 yeah, it
0: does.
1: And, of course, also another, it brings back another legendary racing family to the fold with a driver. Um, and and just, again, the generational thing always, uh, uh, you know, makes me smile to see. And you've got so many, you know, Champagne, Bellinger, Muldoon, Miller. Um, you know, I'm probably leaving out five. Um, but you've got a number of, of of current drivers who are part of um, past families from, you know, back in the days. And so the, now having a Wallace come back uh, just adds another uh, another element. And, uh, again, I, we, like you, I never heard anything about Josh ever racing or wanting to race. And I did the same thing. Logged on to Facebook last night. All of a sudden, there it was. And yeah. it's like, wow, <laughs> this is great. Um, so is. another little bit of added interest in another car for SBS competition.
3: Absolutely, yeah, and, and Pat's Pat's a great guy. He's obviously been around the Speedway for a long time, and and is a big fan. He's there every week, and you know I know that this is a, a dream come true for him, and I'm I'm glad that you know his his son is is going to make that commitment and and step up and and do that. That takes some guts to to go out in one of those cars and never having any racing experience. And you know they've that family obviously been around the track for a number of years, and um, I'm, I'm sure they'll know what to do and and get a handle on it and and get it figured out. So I'm excited for those guys.
1: Yeah. Um, And and you know,
3: what's interesting for him is he's
1: going to have what about two or three races and then a classic.
3: (laughs) I I know. I know. I can't, I can't imagine. I really can't imagine that. You know, I remember how it was being a rookie and um, I was so nervous. I was sitting in the car shaking before my first like three, four SBS features before I finally got over it. And, I can't imagine running a couple of shows and, and going right into the classics. So <laughs> these guys are going to have their work cut out for them next year. You had a whole year. <laughs> I know. It's kind of like three weeks. <laughs> I know.
1: And, you know, unfortunately they didn't. Kind of get all of that done in time for him to get out on the track at all and take advantage of any of the the testing that we've had this year. Right. So he's he's going to come out in 21 and, and basically I'm sure they'll obviously do the early uh, early open tests or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, So they'll have some time, but uh, boy, uh, right into the fire basically for Josh Wallace. But that'll be fun and, and uh, again as you say, great people um, and uh, that element of of uh, the the. Uh, that generational uh, name is, is great. So, um, I mean, what, uh, at this point, what else do we know? I mean, I think everything seems to be kind of, um, I know there was some conversation, I think, about uh, the sportsman race, Jody London's uh, sports mod race uh, still uh, on for next year as well.
3: Yeah. You know, we're looking at bringing those guys back and that's another thing that's, that's kind of TVA right now, but, we're ironing out the details, and, and, you know, Joey had a great show lined up uh, this year, and, yeah. again, that was another thing that never happened. Uh, they, I mean, he had Hirschman, Hostel, all the stars were committed, and, of yep. course, it, you know, it, it ends up falling to COVID-19. But, you know, big names, 30 cars were committed, and um, certainly something we're, we're looking at doing next year. We should have some news soon. Well, you finally
1: uh, got out for the last test and uh, had uh, some optimism coming out of that—that uh, that, that maybe you finally got the problem solved uh, with your your fuel pickup for for 21. So at least you uh, you put the beast away with uh, with a smile, anyway.
3: Yeah, um, it's it's been frustrating. We haven't raced this year, obviously, but it feels like we've been still fighting the car all year, trying to figure out the fuel. <laughs> It ended up like most things with, with racing. Ended up being the stupidest thing that we finally found, and um, it, it <laughs> I hate to admit it, but the, the problem was actually the fuel cell. We have to move it as uh, the pickup was coming directly from the, the tank. That was the issue. Was was the pickup itself, and it all depended on how much fuel was was in the car. So after all that playing around, go figure.
1: So so you just need to, to move the tank to a different position, or.
3: It's, I mean, yeah, yeah, long story short, that's what we'll have to do, but it's it's going to be a lot of work. Um, unfortunately, it it literally was dependent on a quarter of a, a gallon of fuel. If we had seven and three quarters, it was breaking up like crazy, falling on its face. If we had eight, it was good, and I was wow. able to to not have an issue so and that makes sense because we had this problem at the end of last year and it didn't happen until the end of the classic and not until the end of every feature and that's what it turned out to be it it eliminated everything as soon as we put eight gallons of gas in it, and we tried it put seven seven and a half seven and three quarters and that was that was it just playing around with fuel. Wow. So uh, a little bit of adjustment uh, to, to go on over the winter to reposition things and get things where they need
1: to be for, for 2021 for you. Is that going to then alter the uh, the handling of the car at all? Are you Are going to have to kind of reset everything once you move the tank? Because obviously the weight distribution may be a little different, or no?
3: Well, we don't know yet. I hope not. No. <laughs> I really hope not. <laughs> I feel like yeah, the car is running good. I mean, we were running – consistent sixteen sevens on it and you know, it you finally start to get a handle on the car and it you have this other pesky thing bother, you know how it goes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like an electrical issue. It just yeah.
1: annoys you and annoys you, and you really can never – and then it's, you know, you rip everything that could possibly be a part of the electrical system out of the car and replace it all, and the problem goes away, but you still don't know what the old problem originally was because you've literally taken everything out of the car, so you never did get to actually what was causing it. You know, it's kind of one of those things, I feel like, for you, is you you just uh, – it, it, it took you so long to finally figure out that it was the most basic thing, but now you got to – you got to adjust for that, so, you know, I guess
3: you'll see what happens when you come out the first time for 21. I know. We're just going to have to wait and see and do a lot of (laughs) playing around. We have a side cell in the car and the big tank in the back, so we're going to have to monkey with them both.
1: Well, uh, you'll have a couple of test sessions and about uh, three races before the Classic, so (laughs) you've got got a little bit of time, but you don't have very much. No No pressure. (laughs) <laughs> but at least you get to relax in Norway for a while uh, before you get to all that, right? Yeah. Although knowing your dad, he's probably already working on it.
3: A little bit. A little bit he is. He's, he's behaving. We, we got our two test sessions in, but he's still resting and taking it easy, coming back from his, from his blood clots. So I'm, I'm happy that he's relaxing.
1: Well, and uh, we should point out, too, that uh, Jerry Rich – uh is is out uh, and doing a little bit better and that's great news yeah. because you know we were all very concerned about Jerry uh again that kind of all seemed to come up very quickly uh but uh, Jerry Rich i think he's out of the hospital now uh, right in in uh and and home recuperating and feeling better. So uh, hopefully we can get Jerry back in the saddle in time for uh, 2021 to uh, continue in his role as pit steward. Because, I mean, what would a race be at the Oswego Speedway without Jerry Rich working at the Super Pits?
3: I don't even know. I I have no idea. does anybody else? I think he's been there since, like, the 50s. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'll love that. Yeah, <laughs> and Jerry, he'll he'll be he'll be right back there on opening day. And uh, yeah. Dave Rice is out of the ICU too. Yes, and, I was going to get uh, to that. Thoughts and prayers with with Brenda and and Dave too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, good friends of mine and uh, Dave, the longtime track historian. Uh,
1: and, you know, such a big part of the Speedway for so many years and uh, so good to, to to hear that he's coming along better as well. Um, so at least it appears for now that uh, everything is good and we can kind of uh, just settle down and try to hunker down for the holidays and get through this uh, COVID deal. Now, when are you back on U.S.
3: soil? Do you have a return date yet? Yeah, I'll be back the 24th, a couple days before Thanksgiving. Oh, okay. So uh, you're over there for about a month then? Yeah. A little more than Good I want. for
1: you. Well, uh, we obviously will will keep in touch with you on these shows, but uh, you know, because again, news news is happening even as as you're over there. So we'll uh, keep keep uh, up to date with what's going on through you, uh, even from long distance through the miracle of Zoom, uh, an appropriate technology to use for a racing show, I think. Um, and uh, so we hope you have a great time over there, Cam. And it's uh, always fun to uh, to talk with you for a while in the groove here and. Uh, we'll look forward to doing uh, more of it as, uh, as we go forward and get into
3: the uh, holiday season. Thanks very much, Tom. I'm glad we were able to make this work from over here, and we'll look forward to keeping it up the next few weeks. Absolutely. That's Camden Proud.
1: We'll be back with more of Inside Groove Ed Close, going to join us around the turn, and we will begin our tribute to the one and only Jimmy Champine right after this. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security.
0: Welcome back to a very special Inside Groove, Supermodified Podcast,
1: Episode 64, this, a tribute to the pine, Jimmy Champagne, and I am joined uh, by my first very special guest for this uh, show to discuss the life and career of Jimmy Champagne, uh, Ed Close has been gracious enough to spend some time with me this morning and some some time with us on this podcast to uh, talk about Jimmy. And, of course, Ed um, had known Jimmy for a number of years, uh, beginning early in the 70s, and became Jimmy's car owner, uh, I think around 1974 uh, with the Hemi Cuda modified and uh, we'll talk about all of that here with ed first of all um ed thank you for taking some time to be on the podcast this morning and um tell me first of all how you personally got started in racing got interested in the sport what's your background uh with regard to racing
4: way back um my dad uh in the 50s early 50s like 51 in that time period, though every every town seemed to have a, uh, some kind of a dirt track, especially if it was a if they had a horse race track, generally half miles. Yeah. Canton, New Canton, New York had one, and Watertown, and everybody seemed to have one. So that was a Saturday night racing. Basically, every small town had a one or two guys would have a car. We just call them stock cars, and they weren't sportsmen or modifieds or anything; they were just stock cars and sure. class. And generally, from early 30s to late 30s, type coupes, Chevys, and Fords. And my dad did it. He built one, and he was he was a handy guy with that kind of stuff. And and that's when we did it. Started. And I of course I was always in the shop, so uh, garage, house garage. Sure. And uh, it was a Saturday night fun. There wasn't much going on else in the, at that time, but. Uh, so that's what we started about then, and I had a break somewhere about fifty nine through sixty four, school, college, and got married and all of those things, and then we started back up on pavement racing in sixty four. And was
1: that about the time that you made your way to Oswego, or how long did it take you to um, to finally uh, get to the Big O?
4: Well, my dad had got down there once or twice. With our Reveil and the number that was dirt, and okay. back in the day, so I vaguely remember that, and then uh, our first race there was in 1969 with the with the uh, original Hemi Cuda, okay, and so we were we were there with that uh, on the asphalt, and we and we always called that our home track. That was as close as we could get to basically to an asphalt track. Plattsburgh was another two-hour trip, so about the same time. So, uh, but but we always called the Swiggo our home track.
1: It was Guy Chartrand your driver back then.
4: Guy Guy drove for us from '69 till into '74. Okay. And he, he, he retired about that time, and uh we, and Jim got in our modified. and I don't know if one or one or two races prior to the uh, Bud. Two hundred, but uh, which was in the fall of seventy four. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was Jim at, at that, and it was Guy Train is in our modified up to then. Yep. Yeah. Um,
1: and so you met Jimmy uh, somewhere in that period, right? Uh, maybe you know seventy seventy one, some, some at some point.
4: Yeah, seventy one, um, probably uh, about that time. Because um, we we built a, we built our first super, the only super. In uh, the winter of '72 and '73. Yeah. And and, uh, and uh, that's when we it was the Hemi and we had turbocharged uh, 426 Hemi turbocharged and uh, uh, way too powerful for the time, probably even for this time actually. But uh, with the hard tires and all that, but Interesting. it was a it was a very unique car that we built. And Jimmy was interested in it because it was that's how Jimmy was. yeah, he just liked he just innovative things he was he was he not only liked it, he did it so, as we all know is. So uh, ours was basically not a rear engine. it was side engine driver set right beside the, right beside the motor. And it was uh, independent suspension in the front and uh, it was kind of lever rear and it was kind of very unique. For that time, for sure. Uh, so Jimmy was Jimmy was interested in the car from the get go, and but uh, so we we would talk, and then of course when when he went to drive for us from then up from that fall of '74 right through the end of 1980, well, we, you know we were together all that time.
1: And what was uh, going back to the to the debut of the super modified Jimmy obviously quite interested in what you 'd put together um, what um, what led you to go the route that you did with the super because even as a little kid, I can remember looking at that car. And it just looked different. I knew nothing, obviously, at that point about the technology that was into it, but it just looked different. And what, what was the genesis of, of the, the particular, the, the turbo charge, the motor, and the design decisions that went into that? And did Jimmy have any input into the, the, the building or construction of it?
4: No, Jimmy wasn't, uh, no, at that time. Actually, uh, how this all started was, in our modified time prior to 1973, it uh, was uh, John Oldenburg, who's an engineer for Coney Shocks. And he was an indie guy. Ah. And uh, he was very big into Indianapolis racing. But he was the guy who repped for Coney that went to the modified races. Young young engineer, very, very bright. Okay. And and uh, he helped us uh, early on with shocks back in the day. Uh, our first real experience that I can remember was at Trenton in probably 71. Okay. And we're having trouble and, and Oldenburg uh, was having trouble getting through the dog leg, which I don't know if you re- remember that or anybody can recall that, but it was a dog leg in a back oh, yeah. yep, on that, on that mile and a half track. And if, if you, if you, didn't have the right setup and, and a good driver, you couldn't go through there wide open. And uh, so and, and Guy and guy was fearless and he couldn't go through there wide open. The car just wouldn't do it. So Oldenburg scored us away on, on a shock deal and he fixed the problem and, and John he could do it. So we know Oldenburg from then. So anyways, we got to be friends and he was interested. We, we were always kind of doing something different. on modified and you know, uh, and chrysler motors and all sorts of things that most people didn't do and uh, so he was interested in talking about building a super modified based on, on some of the indie indie type okay body body panels uh, engine engine uh, placement uh, independent suspension uh, so because we we like that uh, we kind of that was very innovative we like that so uh, he drew up a design for the car. Uh, we built it in our shop. We had certified welders. That, that, uh, we had aluminum plants. Two aluminum plants here. a GM plant just in the scene up there, 20 miles away. So we had a couple certified welders. So we, we built the car and uh, everything, panels, everything. And uh, so the turbo deal. Probably we shouldn't have done it, but I wanted to run, run a Chrysler motor in a HEMI. And uh, a way to get the horsepower was to, go. of course, back then there was no no rules. And, uh, right. Run what you're wrong, right? Yeah. And uh, so I think there was width rules, that sort of thing, but that yeah. was about it. But uh, so he said, you know, cheap horsepower is turbocharging. And uh, so they basically use a pretty basic... 426 hemi motor that's uh, decompressed um, down to like 8 to 1 and uh, compression ratio. So uh, we did that. Air research. We got the to turbos from air research in California. And we made it all, put it all in there. And But the, the John Oldenburg was basically, was really the designer on this whole thing. Okay. And, and of course we used Tony shocks. We had inboard shocks and springs and, both ends, similar to what they do now. we're yeah. little. Ahead. We're a little ahead of that at the time. Sure were. It, um, but anyways, it, that's the story on the start of that.
1: And so you, you came to a and obviously you kind of struggled with the car to get it to hook up. Um, oh. And I know that yes. Jimmy practiced it, you know, a number of times trying to help out. Do you remember kind of what some of the conversation was there, and what Jimmy was? Kind of telling you about maybe try this or change that. Do you remember what the uh, the, the direction was?
4: Well, he didn't get involved in driving it till after uh, after Guy had retired. Yeah. Uh, and we had given up on we'd given up on the engine combination. It was just too powerful. And uh, the big problem was it was when you let up on the throttle, there was that turbo lag. You just don't kind of want to keep driving the car. In the you ah. had no compression to slow you up in the compression, so would slow you up. So it, it was really a very difficult car, car to drive, and too powerful, and the uh, wrong, wrong kind of power. And um, so we, when Guy quit, we, we had, somewhere along the line, we'd taken the, taken the turbos off, put on a carburetor. Then the motor was just not competitive. It just down on power. Compression ratio was too low, and everything was just nothing was right about the motor. Once you took the turbos off, okay. And uh, so we, when when Jimmy got involved, you know he, he he'd always be around the car, while looking at it and that sort of thing. And uh, back when when Chartrand was driving, but but I think what picked his interest was our our motor location back beside the driver because he. You know, eventually he built a rear-engine car, right, And that got banned. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's what really picked his interest, that 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 could work, all that left-side weight, you know, back there, that could work. Because the car was not bad, and it got better. It it got better when Jimmy said one day, he said, uh, I got a 427 aluminum block motor. And uh, he, uh, I just, probably he just started to head and drive for us by then. I don't remember uh, quite the date. And probably late, 74, somewhere in there. And he said, you've got a crack block, leaks water, uh, that's a good motor. But if you guys want, he was running, I think, the 454 plus okay. back then. And if you guys want to take it and if you can fix it, put it in the car and we'll play with it. And uh, we did that. Uh, we took the motor and uh, again as I as I said earlier we had really good welders because uh, one of the welders was certified in aluminum welding on it um, it was uh, the Nelco I believe okay and because uh, we had two aluminum plants here and uh, so uh, we devised a way to pressure work, check it with water and you know and weld on it and fix it and we actually got it in together and in the car and and uh, and that's when Jimmy, we'd bring the, the car down on a Saturday night to the racetrack, and, and not necessarily going to race it, but Jimmy would take the car out and practice, and and uh, you know he he liked he liked that part of the of the situation where this rear this engine placement and independent suspension and all of that that, that intrigued him, so uh, that's how that all came down.
1: Okay, so was he able to, um, with with the different motor in the car then, was he able to give you feedback that actually improved the car? Because I remember you had, I know Merv Trikler ran for you a time or two, and he looked, he ran pretty well with it, and Mark Letcher uh, ran a time or two, ran pretty well with it. I think I remember Freddie Graves getting in it at one point too. Freddie,
4: Freddie was in a Merv Treichler really, really uh, I thought we had, you know, I thought maybe Murr would have, would have he, he just, he really didn't like super modified or else he didn't like our supermodified, but okay, I don't think he, he drove much, but he, but he got some good speed out of that. Yeah. Got some good, got some good times and Mark did a pretty good job with it he, as Mark, you know, he Mark could, you know, and, yeah. uh, and, and it, certainly Freddie Graves, you know, very capable and, uh. So we, you know we had some good we had some good uh, runs with it, but that wasn't primarily what we did back then we were modified guys you know yeah. modified guys yeah. and, and uh, so but but we Jimmy would take the car out in practice and you know make recommendations and changes and and uh, what he liked about or didn't like and so it went that went on for a while like you know I can't remember. I was trying to remember when the last time that we ran the car. I don't even on the year. I don't remember what it was. could have been 75 or yeah, something. Yeah, I think it would have been you?
1: 75 because I think uh, Ed Thompson got it at some point uh, and made his yep. debut, I think, in
4: 76 with it. I sold it to Eddie, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Sold, I sold it to Eddie, yeah. Yeah, and he
1: and, kept uh, changing it changing it, and finally got it running pretty good toward the end of the time that he had it before he built his office. I
4: think he did. Yeah. I think he did. Yeah and it it was a good design it was different certainly different than the time you know yeah but but Jimmy liked the like the idea of the, of the engine placement and the weight distribution and and all of that that was I mean, obviously he he built that fantastic rear engine car oh,
1: yes but we're getting ahead of ourselves uh back in back in 74 um you and Jimmy teamed up with the modified for the first time, yes. um, and we all know the early results of that, right, uh, with uh, with Wynn. Um, and talk a little bit about how that came about, that, you know, Jimmy ended up racing your modified, which I think he was, was he in the original hemi or was he in the, uh, I think no. there was a team car, right? There was hemi 2.
4: hemi 2. Yes. He was in, in that car, straight axle. Uh, a lot of cars had gone to independent by then, but we had still kept the straight axle, had the Cuda, had the Hemi order. And, uh, yeah, Jimmy, you know, it was the fall of 74. Yeah. I, I really can't tell you. Uh, you know, we didn't uh, – guy had, resu- had, you know, retired, resigned. He'd, he'd done from racing. And uh, so we needed a driver. I guess it was just obvious to ask Jimmy. I'm trying to remember the, the, who was the king of the Swigil, right?
1: Yeah, really. Um, well, especially I mean, going into that Bud Mod 200, I mean, y- you know, who else would you want in the car except the guy that that was tearing it up in a Super at that point?
4: Exactly. And not only that, he had he had his own cars. I don't. He had his own eight-ball modified basketball yep. cars that were successful also. You know. Yep. Very, very successful. And. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember exactly how that all came about, but of course I knew Jimmy, so probably it was just a natural thing to ask him, and uh, that's how it all that's what happened, anyways. And, and uh, then we raced together till the end of '80, 1980. Yeah, you were together for a good
1: while, and and uh, obviously, um, you know, had had the win early uh, in the the 200, and then. Um, had i know i think at least a number of other wins earlier on um with cuda too and then um do i remember that somewhere in that that uh first couple of years that uh guy actually came back in the original cuda and bought it or, or something had happened where he ran some races in in the original cuda after retiring the first time
4: no, I don't think so. No, okay. I don't think I'm t I am do not remember that at all. Okay. If that, no, because the original CUDA ended up here in right here, uh, where the local guy bought it and and made a dirt car out of it. Oh, okay. So the okay. Bolio And uh that that was not that original. And the second CUDA two is not too far from here, I understand. The guy was uh was uh, restoring it back to... Oh, to, great. To, to, to yeah, and uh, so that's not too far from here. So oh, I that's think that awesome. Was,
1: we're... we're uh... Uh we're very big on restoring race cars here on the groove. We've got, there are several supers, obviously, as I'm sure, you know, that are various stages of restoration. And we, um, we, we like to, uh, I, I know Larry Trinka listens, uh, to this show religiously and Larry has been restoring some cars and, uh, he's, he's got a couple of Steve joyas and, and we talk often about uh, how many cars there are actually out there being restored. And to hear that, uh, that CUDA 2 is in the process of being restored. That's another car that Jimmy drove that, uh, uh, at some point will be completely put together. And that, uh, just me, my own personal, uh, excitement level just went up a bit because, of course, Jimmy was my hero. And, and, uh, to know that I'm going to be able to eventually look at his original, um, modified ride with you, um, again, at some point, uh, would be amazing. And we, we talk all the time about trying to get all these cars together every year, uh, you know, at, at, at one point um, so people can see them and have a nice little car show, which I think would draw a lot of fans back
4: just to see that. Well, I haven't, I don't know this year that the COVID-19 has kind of slowed everything up. So oh, sure, we yeah. Never got to a racetrack this year. So uh, normally we'd run into the fellow who was doing it at Oswego and we'd visit about it and to ask questions, but uh, of course this year was not going to be that. Because track never opened. But, yeah, but I don't. I don't know what what the situation is right now with the car. But I'd like to find out. Sure. Yeah, yeah
1: that would be fun. Um, we would love to know. And if uh, you do find out, let us know. We would love to pass along the updates. Sure. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, what was Jimmy like to, uh, to to race with? What was he like in terms of you know driver <laughs> owner, that kind of thing? <laughs>
4: What was he like? He was a great guy, um, in, in every every respect. Uh, we, we were friends as well as uh, not not just racing friends. We were friend friends. Yeah. And we, we we talked a lot on the phone, and of course whenever we raced. And uh, so, Jimmy was could design a car, he could build a car, drive the car, fix the car. He 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 was he was one complete racer, and some you know back in that day there was a lot of them, but he was the best certainly at that. But super modified for sure. And uh, so as a person, great guy, very calm, uh, never got excited. Uh, uh, I don't know if you can, you know, the book that's on Champagne, and there was an oh, article. Yes. That, that, I have it. That was, yeah, and there was an article in there, a piece in there about when Jimmy would drive for us on the Modified, particularly if he was driving the Super Modified the same night. Of course, you know, if you're looking at probably 800 horsepower versus 600 horsepower. Sure. 800-pound weight difference in cars, so, yeah. So, uh, we, he would say, you know, we're going to talk about talk about the car after the race, and he'd say, uh, call me on Tuesday, and because uh, he needed to download in his mind. Yes. What went on with that? That's how he was very analytical. Yes. And uh, so we would Tuesday we'd talk, and uh, talk about the car. He had he had. Figured out what he needed to say and talk about, so and that's what we would do for the next race. And because uh, the difference in the two cars, speed-wise, handling-wise, was it was totally different. Oh sure. So he had the he had to figure that out, you know, in his mind before we talked. So, but how was he? Great friend. Miss him, still miss him, and uh, great friend. He seemed
1: to be very unemotional about his racing. As you say, analytical is a great word. It was like he was a thinker. He was an engineer. He was very much um, kind of left-brained, it seemed like, in the way that he related to to race cars. And, and um, that's why he wanted those three days. Now, you went, you you eventually built what became known as the Hemi Colt, um, I think, yes. maybe 75, 76. Yes. Um, and uh, now, again, my, my question, that was a chassis dynamics car, was, was it yes, not? It, yep, yeah. Yes, it was. And, yep. and, 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 and was that a kind of a collaboration of, of thoughts from you and Jimmy about what you wanted in a new
4: car, or how did – Well, you know? actually, probably not. Uh, it was uh, ch- chassis dynamics at the time, Bobby V. Bobby V, yep. Bobby, Bob Cuneo. And they were they built and Bodine was Jeff Bodine was running their cars at the time. Yeah, and they and they had the hot ticket at the time, and uh, so and again, Bob Cuneo was another one of those people who like that like to do things different, like to try different things, blah blah blah. Just like to do things. Sure, another and brilliant guy, and uh, so we decided we we're going to that was that was our first buck race car. We'd always build our own cars. Yeah, and that was our first about chassis and car. So uh, we did, we decided just to go with them and and whatever their ideas were and and uh, so that's when that that's what happened there. There was nothing too probably probably at the time there was some things that were different uh, that they had uh, that was that maybe a Troyer wasn't. I'm not even sure there was a. Troyer and was there when? When did it started? I No, I don't 7, think Maynard didn't started.
1: Yeah, I think it was later seventies he started really mass producing him um, into the eighties. Yeah. But yeah, I I think he was still just
4: doing his own thing. Yeah. So, anyways, that's that's where we went with that, and it was we were very happy with that car. And uh, you know, eventually uh, that that car had a Chevy in it. Yeah we we'd gone to the we'd gone to uh, the big block Chevy at that point. Oh okay. From Bob Johnson, Milt, Milt Johnson, you know that name? I know big the name. Block. Yes, sir. Sure do. And uh, the Johnson Boy's father in Rochester. We got our, that's where we got our big blocks from at the time. Yep.
1: Okay. So it actually, even when you called it, even when it was known as the Hemi Colt, Hemi Colt it really wasn't a Hemi.
4: I think we, I, 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 I'm trying to uh, come up with that answer. I don't remember. We'd have been running, to, and so we would have it would have been a Hemi Cuda to We always had a, a Hemi in that. So we must have had it in there to start with. I'm not okay. sure about that. <laughs> I, I, can't re, I can't recall right now at this point. Maybe I can look it up at some point, but I don't know. But uh, we did end up putting the big block Chevy in it, uh, at the end of the, somewhere along the line.
1: You guys did a lot of traveling with that car, uh, obviously running a, a, a lot of the big shows. And, and there were even some tracks in Canada, I think, that you guys would I mean, go I mean, to. Talk I mean, a little I mean, bit about that part of the...
4: Well, around the border, you know. The bridges closed off right now. Canada. Yeah. It's been closed off. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of tracks over there. And, and Jimmy ran there in his own car a few times up in Ottawa, uh, Stetsville and uh, so uh, there was that. We ran up there on a Wednesday night. Jerry Cook would come up. Richie Evans would come up uh, there on a Wednesday night. And uh, then there was other tracks. A lot of a lot of a lot of dirt tracks, and very uh, few asphalt. But uh, that was the main one that we'd go to. Yeah. And, of course when earlier on down there by Buffalo was a Cayuga. Uh, at the time, I don't know what they call it now. Cayuga Speedway, C- yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, we'd go there once in a while. And uh, so, yeah, you know, that was our Canadian deal. But the Wednesday night in Stittsville, a lot of the good runners came there. That was Capital City, wasn't it? Capital City Speedway. Yep, you know?
1: yep. Yeah, that was
4: interesting yeah. to have
1: those shows in, in the middle of the week. And, and I guess back then it was just easier for people to travel, right?
4: Oh, much easier to travel. I mean, it was you know, in the border crossing was easy and, uh, you know, declare a few things, gasoline, that sort of thing, and that was about it. And, and uh, of course, Canadians were racing for coming here and got their account, you know, Adirondack Speedway for sure, down to Malta. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, so uh, many uh so many of them had cars came down. Uh, but, Wednesday night was a pretty unique thing because you had some really, really good uh, drivers and and cars that came up there. And Jimmy drove for us up there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, just, uh, I I feel like, I feel so blessed because I feel like the 70s for both the Supers and the Modifieds were really the salad years because, again, virtually no rules really, And uh, there were, you know, with the modifieds especially, everything was still, it seems to me anyway, very stock and available. And there were so many different body styles. And, I mean, you just had tons of them that would, especially to be at Oswego and you get to the 200 and, you know, look – over in the staging area, everybody's waiting to go into the pit, so there's 70 plus cars sitting there. It was like for a five or six year old kid, it was just almost, you know, sensory overload, um, you know, at that time. And, and, and the greatest drivers, gosh, I mean, that must it, have been an incredible time period for you.
4: It, yeah, it, exactly. And, you know, you go to Langhorne, 100 and some odd cars. Trying to, yeah. Uh, trying to qualify, uh, in Trenton, same way, same you know, race of champions. Uh, do you remember the remember when we ran the the two and a half mile Pocono track?
1: I remember the pictures. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Well, there's there's a Jimmy Champagne story. Uh please. He's in our car. Excuse me.
1: I said, please do tell.
4: Uh, he was in our car when we this was a, had to be what we had the Colt. And uh, you know we didn't have nothing like we have now for for uh, safety. You know we had a single Nerf bar and yeah, uh, and you know and with the seats were you know nothing compared to what they are now. Right. It, and, there was, and the tires were just regular modified tires. There was no liner Yeah. And they say that the radar would catch these modifieds at 200 miles an hour entry into into number one. Wow. So they had a, and that's what was said, anyways, whether it was true or not. I know they were they, they were going, and uh, and uh, you can ask Maynard Troyer <laughs> when he when that one when he rolled that one over off number two. Do you recall that? When I w- I remember
1: the one at Daytona. Um... I don't remember one at was it, Did he have one. Was at, it
4: Daytona? Yeah,
1: he had a Grand National one at Daytona, but I don't remember. No, one. Modified. Oh, was it, a modified. Oh, was it a modified? Okay.
4: He just destroyed it. Yeah, He was with Nagel at the time. He hadn't, He was still working with Nagel. Yeah. And uh, Nagel Ford, remember? Yep. Yeah. And, well, anyways, there was no radios, no way to talk to him. And uh, he was out in practice. And he was coming down the straightaway. And we noticed that the left rear tire it was still up but it was down It it went it had went flat but the speed was keeping it centrifugal was keeping it up so he could go down the straightway and he apparently didn't know it and uh, you know, we couldn't tell him and uh, even down into down into one and of course it just went around and around and around and didn't hit the wall he kept wow. it off the wall it's but all four wheels, cause he locked the brakes up, destroyed the wheels, tires, of course, tore a Nerf bar off, the tire let loose. And uh, so, brought him in, put four tires on it, wheels, put a new Nerf bar on it. He didn't say much of anything. Got back in the car, and out he went, just as fast as he ever was. <laughs> yeah, I just cheated death. No big deal. <laughs> You
1: know, no big deal. It's it's just, you know, is as as, <laughs> as you know as as inappropriate as that is as, as that seems to to be this, to even make that joke it's it it fits i mean you you know you're going in it let's say you you know the radar was mostly correct and you're going in at 160 at that point um you know that's still awfully quick to lose control of a race car on a two and a half mile track back then with the safety being what it was um, oh, you no. know and yet he just brushes it off and gets back in and goes and that's I, that's what the drivers did back then. It, it's it's amazing. You know, you, you kind of, on the one hand, you call it bravery, and on the other hand, you know, these guys are just nuts, you know.
4: <laughs> well, I, and I think he had a little bit of a, a, a experience with that, simply the speed of the supermarket Sure, modified. yeah. It when something, phase something it. happened, yeah. you know, it, the same type of thing with Super, but, you know, shorter track. But, but you know, certainly he had experience with speed than having something happen bad, you know?
1: Yeah. And I suppose when, uh, you know, when you hit steel at Oswego uh, uh, a few times, uh, probably spinning around in turn one at Pocono maybe doesn't seem quite so scary, uh, well, you know? <laughs> as long as you don't hit anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but he, he just, I'm sure that he was... Uh, 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 again a a pleasure to have drive simply because of the fact that he never got too upset about anything and really you know was always trying to think about how to make it better you kind of had a driver slash crew chief um with jimmy it seems like uh in a a way
4: he was very easy to work with on that you know no no, never demanded anything Uh, it was always a suggestion you know what i mean and talk about it and and uh, so he was, you know, he was very, 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 very easy to work with, and uh, he, you know, everybody loved him. I guess I can use that word because, yeah, of, because you know, and what was there not to like about him, you know? Exactly. And, and so that's that's my estimation. And uh, but uh, so Jimmy was. We uh, when when he decided that. When he decided he was going dirt racing in '81, memory built the he built sprint a car, sprint car, yes. And we were sorry to leave him, to have him leave us, you know. Yeah. And, and in fact, we asked him. So asked him. I don't know if he mentioned this, but we asked him, who do we put in our car now, Jimmy? And uh, and uh, he says, Chuck Siprich Yes, and so he, his recommendation, we put Chuck in the car. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And so Chuck seemed was,
1: to be another one that was kind of like Jimmy in a way, just very easygoing and very matter-of-fact and, and uh, very su- easy to work with.
4: Super nice. Super nice guy and family. Yep. Yeah, very much like him. Yep. and I think probably that's why Jimmy recommended. You know, that truck was fast. He was, he yeah, was really, really running fast in the supers. You know,
1: yeah. So. Well, he was. He was like Jimmy. He was a multi-surface guy too. You know, he could drive anything, and, yes. And, yes, he and and had driven. He driven sprint cars. Driven dirt dirt mods. Driven asphalt mods, of course. Driven supers. Um, yep. So they yeah. had very similar uh, backgrounds and approaches. I think to. What they were doing, um, the two of them, it seemed to be.
4: Yeah, he, um, yeah, he was very much the same, and I think that's why Jimmy recommended him, you know, because he he knew how we were, and uh, this was that's how it ended up, anyways. But we, was, you know, it was it was sad to it was sad to have him leave us, but that was what he was going to do. He 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 had had it was they banned the supermodified, I think, about then, right that year. And yeah, those, well,
1: that was yeah. They banned it at the end of '79, and so he built the sprint car for '80. And I think didn't he? He ran for you a little bit there in '79, right? And then I think '80 was was it '80 80 or '81 that Chuck took over?
4: Chuck took over in '81. '81. Jimmy okay. Jimmy yeah. drove through through '80. Okay. Yeah. Then yeah. yeah. Chuck and then Chuck was our driver in '81.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, but you and Jimmy stayed in touch and still had a lot of those Tuesday phone calls, from what I understand, oh. even after he left, right? Because you were—it was more well, about the friendship than it was about the racing.
4: It was, yes, we did. We did talk a lot. In fact, I think about this way too much. But um, he called me in the, in the fall of 82, 82 Yep, and said he'd been offered a ride for the two hundred. And uh, he didn't know the car, That, that uh, didn't know about the car or, you know, didn't ask me if he should do it or not. He wanted to find out about the car and about the, yeah. and that sort of thing. And so he called me and asked my opinion on it. And I said, it's a winning car. I said, the car has been winning. Yes. And uh, I said, uh, it's history is good. It's great. And I said, it's a good ride. And, of course, he took the ride, yeah, and we we know the result, but it wasn't the car's fault, it wasn't no. anybody's fault No. You know, i mean, from the standpoint of, of 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 him of him getting in a wreck, but uh the uh, but that's you know, I still think about that because you you ask if we still talk yes we yes we did,
1: yeah,, you know. yeah, yeah, I remember um, you know, and I and and I I opened the the, the show with um, some thoughts th- uh, on Jimmy, and uh, but I didn't talk about this. Um, I remember that week. Um, I mean, I was always a Jeb Bodine fan in the modifieds. He was my mm-hmm. guy, and so. Yep. The the uh, of course the white tornado was as you say was the car at, at that time. Um, I mean, it, with nods to Richie and some of the other guys who were also winning a bunch, but that was the that was a winning car. And and so when Jeff um, went came south, um, and and then I saw John Hill in the Post Standard had put a, a, a column out about uh, Jimmy. Uh, driving that car. I think it was the Wednesday leading to the to the weekend. And I can remember just thinking, oh my gosh, this is great. You know, um, oh, and right. Greg, Greg Sacks
4: was the Billy hot... Billy Taylor. Yeah. Billy Taylor owned, Billy Taylor
1: yeah. owned the 99 and Greg Sacks was the hot hand with the Willsburg Five that year. They were mm-hmm. winning everything. And so, um, you know, I'm thinking, well, Jimmy's, you know, he could challenge Greg. This is going to be great. And of course, you know, um, it, it it just, that night it, it is still so hard for, uh, I'm sure, for any of us really to talk about because of the way that it ended. But, um, you know, he didn't, you know, the race didn't play out for him, you know, even until that point. It hadn't played out the way anyone would have hoped, of course. He was um, in an early uh, pile up and I think lost a lap and just wasn't quite running the way that you might have. Um, but I know Billy wanted to take him and, and run him at Thompson and Martinsville and you know, whatever other fall shows there were there. And, um, gosh, you think about what could have been, um, yes. yep. you know, uh, But there was that period where Jimmy just didn't – he wanted to run the sprint car, just didn't really have a great interest in, you know, running a bunch of more modified races. And I think that opportunity kind of for him came out of left field, you know, like uh, it wasn't something he was asking for or wanting. And so, you know, uh, it would be obvious that you would would say, well, Jimmy, you know – it's a winning car. If you get a chance to drive it, you should drive it. You know, um, and gosh, it's uh, you know who would have known? Um, but well, who would have known? That was know? that was
4: the thing. And, and if he was gonna if he was gonna drive if he was gonna race in that race, he couldn't have got in a better car. You know, no, he couldn't. And uh, if he's I guess the, uh, the other decision would have been not the race, you know? Yeah. Was, well, yeah, I it was either,
1: go. you know, either I want to do it or I don't. And I, I think, yeah. you know, at that point, the potential, the upside potential was tremendous. And, in fact, I remember it was my younger brother's four years younger than me. It was the first time that my parents let he and I go to a race together without one of them. And we had, we got into our seats in the grandstand and practice hadn't been going on very long, and I remember Roy Sova saying the two fastest cars so far between eighteen four and eighteen five, Doug Haveron and Jim Champagne. And I went, "Wow, uh, you know, <laughs> that didn't take too long." <laughs> like I was already Indeed, excited. I'm, um, you know, I'm
4: not a surprise. Either. <laughs> no, I mean, and
1: you know it. Uh, and then you know the irony, or the uh, you know for me uh, about five six years ago. Um, I had gone to Ray Everham's shop down here in Mooresville um, to talk with uh, a driver named Danny Bone who races modifieds down here and worked for Ray and, um, and I had gone to do an interview with him and so he was touring me around the shop. Ray's got bunches of of uh, old race cars and beautiful cars of all types and I I turned a corner, and all of a sudden there was the car, and I got to tell you that was f- for a yeah, minute it was a little disorientating. Um, because on the one hand this was the car that Jeff Bodine, my guy, won a bunch of races with. On the other hand, it, you know, and it, it it was I it was it was a little. Like I said, it was very disconcerting for a second. Um, all I could yeah. do was kind of just stare. But um, you know what a what an amazing time in uh, modified and super modified racing to have this man. Um, you know the innovation, the, um, the the way that he treated his fans. Uh, you know, learned my name would sort of squat down and talk to me like I mattered when I went to get his autograph. Um, you know, he, that was the kind of a guy he was. And so the impact that he had on so many different types of racing in such a short period, say the seventies, late sixties to, you know, to the early eighties when, when he passed, the impact that he made on supers, modifieds, dirt modifieds, and even to to do what he did with the sprint car for the short time that he drove it, um, you know, to to go finish third at Syracuse against the Outlaws, to go to Pennsylvania and run well enough to. To be to be respected against the posse, um, you know, and and to see the way that all kind of happened over such a condensed period of time um, is really far beyond what most people would even think about, right? Um, until you really sit down and examine it.
4: It's uh, yes, it, it it was interesting. On the he really was into this into the sprint car building it. I don't know if you built that car. or. or it was a Lloyd chassis, it, I think. Was it? Yeah, I but think it was a Lloyd chassis. He was, he, the, 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 that, the concept of how making make making one of those cars go fast, and that, that intrigued him, you know. And, yeah. And uh, I, I remember one day he said to me we were talking, he said the whole, the whole deal here, and it's probably different now, but he said the whole deal with one of these cars is how much dirt you can pump off the right rear tire. And I and laughed because I you know, thinking at the time, you know, thinking at the time that maybe that's what they were doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. How, much grip, how much grip they could get, and I think was not the time when they could run the big slick. Maybe the big uh, yeah, I think big so. Tire. Yeah, yeah. I think it was that time period. So that was, he said, yeah, that's what that's what amounted to. So uh, it may still be the way they do it. I don't know. But <laughs> that was that that really was uh, that really uh, intrigued him because of course you didn't necessarily run a super that way or a modified that way right but uh better, a different balance but but that's him and that was him he was an engineer he was in, he was thinking about that whole why that worked you know
1: yeah yeah i mean he was a driver that i think we all were just waiting for to see in an indie car and it never quite happened. It got close from what I understand a couple of times, but never yeah. quite came together. And again, he would have been exactly the kind of driver who would have gone to Indy and with his engineering mind would have likely been very successful and may even have, you know, impacted what an Indy car was had he yeah, you yeah, know
4: I, I do believe you're right. You know yeah, because I do believe you're right. He had the right Attitude, and that was, you know, he had that right attitude about racing. You know what I mean? He yeah. Didn't, he didn't get ex- extremely excited, uh, not that you could see, anyways. And uh, no, he'd have been very successful then, given a given good equipment. You know? Yeah. I think I think so.
1: I remember uh, one night after he had had some sort of an issue, and he had up finishing the race. I think he was a lap or two down. This was probably I, I I don't remember what year. Probably early. He still had the 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 wedge the what was the wedge car so it was probably 75 76 somewhere there before he built the, the the offset first offset and i remember just remember going to get his autograph and i remember him saying to a guy and again it's kind of you know you walk in in the middle of a conversation and and i remember but i remember him looking at the guy and saying well some years you just can't hit the side of a barn and and that was the first time i'd heard that phrase and of course as however old i was I remember kind of laughing at it, like I was thinking he was saying something funny, and then I realized later it was quite the opposite. He was probably expressing frustration. Um, but, again, never, that was as excited as I ever saw him get,
4: you know. Yep, yep. He, uh, he, he, he was very, very you know, I guess they would say cool, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he, was, he was very cool about all those things, you know, and, and, and in a good sense. He just was, uh, you know, he had that very quiet at attitude and but uh, got things done I mean, yeah in, in everything. and everything
1: and never never quit never quit trying to make it better I think is really you know just constantly um even if he was the fastest car uh, you know from what everybody tells me he, he didn't he wasn't the type that would make such radical changes that he would dial himself out but he was he was always the type to just tweak 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 thinking that um, you know, that, that it was never as good as it could be. And, you know, again, even if, if he was winning by half a track, he was constantly um trying to improve what he had, and I think obviously it speaks volumes for the fact that he's still the winningest supermodified driver in the history of the Oswego speedway. Um, you know, nearly uh what, forty, almost forty years after uh, you know, after his his passing, um, nobody's nobody's come close, and I don't think anybody will. Honestly,
4: well, he, he was maybe you know he was very very intelligent yeah. guy, and he had figured out a Oswego Speedway, and uh, of course, he always they always put them in the back, right, in the future, because, and I think there were 40 lap races, weren't well, they? 45. So what the, the 45, yep. Them? 45, 45? yep. 45, 45 lap races. And if you can recall, he never charged to the front right away. And and then all at once, at some point, away he'd go. Yeah. Like, just on the outside. Yep. He could pass anywhere, but if the outside was open, he'd, he could go there and pass. Yep. And next thing you know, he's, He's gone, right? He's got the lead and gone. And I asked him one day about that and, uh, you know, why, why he waited so long, you know, to make his moves. And he said, had to wait till the track came to me, wait till there was an outside. So early in the race, apparently there wasn't an outside for him. So he would just ride until there was, you know. Right. Other people got up there. And, and of course, he had the car and his talent to get it done, you know. Yep. So that was interesting that uh, – when he, because he, he's just a thinking guy, he he knew what he was doing, you know. Yeah. He
1: you
4: know, very, 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 very smart about those sort of things. Didn't go charging through the mess and getting wrecked, you know.
1: Well, yeah, and I think there again, he won a lot of races by, you know, by attrition. And 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 I say and 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 I don't think it demeans the win. I think what it, what what I'm saying is, you know, he did. He would wait a while. Now, of course, there was a period of time, I think 78, when it seemed like he could just, you know, go from the back to the front in 10 laps. But, um, you know, that there he had one of those years that year where, you know, you, Todd Gibson had one in 69 and, you know, Swift had years similar to that prior. Um, you know, you're just the dominant car. And, and for a period of time, nobody can – uh, can keep up with you, but then of course uh, other people built offset cars, and then out comes the rear engine, and we all know the history of that. And and uh, sure. you know, but he it just seemed to me that he he was a very again calculating racer, and that benefited him in everything he drove. He could be a charger, and he could you know mash the gas when he needed to, but it really wasn't his preferred style.
4: No, no, that's was what I'm saying. He was very calculating, yeah. And he knew what he was, he knew what he needed to do. And uh, if it if it was a case of track having to come to him, he he would wait. And if he could go, well, he just went. That's yep. all. And yep. And he, and sometimes he just drove where other people wasn't, you know, and 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 got the job done. Yeah. And very, 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 very smart driver. Very calculating. Uh, so. But anyways, that, you know, Jimmy was, uh, we became friends over that year. Not yeah. You know, personal friends. Yeah. And, uh, and we, I enjoyed that friendship. And, uh, and, you know, still miss them, that's for sure. Oh,
1: yeah. I think we all do. I think, uh, you know, no matter how much time goes by, I think, uh, you know, when you leave the kind of an impact, an imprint on, you know, on something, I don't think that goes away ever. I think it, it, it people you just kind of adjust to the fact that they're no longer there, but you 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 don't ever forget and you don't ever, I can, I can go, you know, I, I like to, when, when they have the test and tunes on classic week, I like to go into the grandstand and sit where I used to sit with my parents when I was little. And, and you just, I can sit there and stare at the track. And in my mind, you know, it's 1975, and I got some race playing in my head, and the, and, and Jimmy's right back there again. You know, and and uh, and not just Jimmy, but all of the drivers that, you know, that were a part of that, and and uh, you know even your car, because the innovation is really what made that so special. That period of time was right. the, the variety, right? And and so, um, I, again, I can only imagine what it was like. As a as as a guy who was involved, who had a race car or in your case cars, um, you know, in that period, what it was like to experience that as an owner and a participant, rather than just a you know snot nosed little race fan like I was.
4: Well, obviously there was no rules, or else we couldn't have built the car we built. Sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, everything was totally different than what anybody else had, but that was you know that was the brainchild of John Oldenburg and as a designer and the engineer on it. Yeah. And we just, we just build it. That's all. And, uh, at the same time, uh, the rules were, there were no, you know, yeah. how wide, how wide you could be. And, uh, probably a length. I don't know, but, uh, certainly there wasn't, there wasn't any engine rules or suspension rules or we, you know, we, we had a front wing back then, a nose wing. back yeah. then. We had a rear wing, uh, but, you know, if you will, somewhat of a rear ring, not like today's, but, yeah, but uh so you know there was no rule i mean you you run what you're wrong, kind of
1: yeah, yeah, it was it was uh i like to I like to tell people it was a delicious time in motorsports because you know it was just such a it, it, it you just never knew i mean even the, the variety in the supers the variety even in modified and body styles and such back then was was amazing um and here we are all these years later ed and um you and champagne are back together again, uh, in a way, as you know the legacy kind of lives on through uh, Jimmy's nephew Keith. And I know you've been a, a, a part of yep. his uh, team. Talk a little bit about what it's been like to uh, to work with Keith.
4: Yep. Uh, yep. Keith is uh, Keith is uh, nephew. Yep. Eddie Eddie is you know Keith's father. Yep. Is, um, Jim's youngest brother. Yep. And so we were together. with, uh, Not this year, but we were together, well, two or three years together yeah. uh, at the track. Sure, you know, yep. You oh, know, uh, it's, it's yeah. The legacy lives on, you might say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know good, that all, all good people.
1: It means a lot to Keith to have your have had your you know have had your support. Uh, and 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 uh, I've known Keith since he was five, and you know I know what Jimmy's. Legacy in his career mean to Keith, and and so. Uh, oh yeah. And, oh yeah. And even to those of us who are Champagne fans, to see you working with Keith and and, and helping Keith and encouraging Keith uh, is pretty special, honestly, because of course it just recalls all of that that time, um, you know, that we uh, we all loved so much. So uh, I thank you for your support of of uh keith and thank you for uh the 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 hard work that you put in all those years as a car owner and and mechanic and whatever and uh, not you know obviously not just with jimmy but in general uh and and uh you know i'm really appreciative that you took uh the time to chat with us here on inside groove uh and to help us to remember
4: uh and and pay tribute been Been my pleasure it really has been. My pleasure. Thank you. Rob, a lot of memories talking. For sure. This.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Uh, 100%. Uh, so, again, thank you so much, and we wish you uh, Godspeed and good health, and uh, hopefully we'll see you back at the Big O in 2021 if we can uh, kind of get. Welcome back to Inside Groove, a very special Edition of the Groove this week. Uh, Really enjoyed talking with Ed Close, and thank him so sincerely for his time. Uh, And now, as we continue with our tribute to Jimmy Champagne, we welcome to the Inside Groove for the first time Cerise Murata and Cerise, of course, Jimmy's daughter. And it is my pleasure, Cerise, to welcome you to the show, to have some conversation about your dad and about uh, his life and your perspective. I am, uh, I'm wondering at what point, um, if you can think back, at what point did you go to the racetrack for the first time? Do you remember how old you were and do you remember kind of what your very first impressions of uh, your dad as a racer were?
2: Gosh, Tom, that that's a hard question, you know, and I was 10 when he passed. So my memories are, um, you know, a little bit strained from the younger years. Yeah. And I don't re- I remember one particular instance, and I don't remember what speedway it was at, but it was actually sprint cars. So it wasn't a Swego oh, okay. It, it wasn't uh, Asphalt. But I remember um, my mom taking us three kids up into the booth, and we were watching my dad race sprint cars. And he went over the edge of the track and disappeared. And I remember we were sitting there eating pizza, and we were kind of alarmed. And then he kind of popped back up the other side, and it was fine. So. That may be one of my earlier memories. Um, we didn't go to the track a whole lot, but when we did, it was certainly something special.
1: Now, uh, I'm guessing that might have been Weedsport Speedway because I remember when I was young and the first few times that I, my sister and brother-in-law took me to Weedsport. Th- that always used to make me laugh you'd see a car drop off and of course you know when you're six or seven you have no idea the danger or what's down there you're just right. wow we just lost a race car and like and then they come up in the other corner and it's like well that was cool um exactly. you know only when you get older do you realize so yeah i think it might have been weed sport there so do you remember having been at oswego at all with with your dad do you have any memories of that at all
2: I do. I definitely do have a couple memories of going to Oswego. You know, my mom was not um, under the belief that we should be there every week. So I think the occasions that we went to Oswego were few and far between. But I do remember a couple times um, sitting in the stands, and I can't tell you what race it was. But I remember one particular one where I don't know if my dad won or he did really well. And I remember sitting there, you know, just feeling this immense, you know, um, feeling of pride, like, hey, that's pretty cool. Um, Because our dad was just our dad. You know, he wasn't Jimmy Champagne to us. So it was almost like when we were able to go to Oswego, we got a little tiny glimpse into what so many of you race fans saw all the time. And I remember um, it might have been that same evening, walking out of the pits with my dad, and boy, I was proud as a peacock. And I remember um, somebody saying to me, like, hey, who's that? And I turned around, and I was like, that's my dad. Um, And it was a really cool feeling.
1: Do you remember it being almost surreal, as if maybe, you know, you were, like, who is, because to you, as you say, he's just your dad, and yet to all these other people, He's this larger-than-life kind of person. Did did it almost seem like a a surreal experience for you to kind of experience that?
2: Yeah, and I think it made me appreciate, even though I was young, appreciate him even more because it's amazing, even still to this day, 38 years after his passing, to see when people talk about him to me and, you know, grown men who literally are like tearing up and crying in front of me as they recall their memories. It's so moving. So for me, it was, you know, that tiny glimpse into other people's perspective and how they saw him and how they loved him. Um, and it was really special to be a part of that.
1: I'm curious uh, because I remember reading in his book uh, that was written about him by Jordan and Andy, I remember him talking about how on Sundays... Sundays were for the family, so he would be in the garage every night, and he would go do the race. Yes. And then on Sundays, he said <laughs> yeah. he would go out, well, make his list of things that needed to get done, so he kind of knew what he had to start with, um, you know, for the week, and then lock the door and take you all out for candy and ice cream. What do you remember about those those times like that?
2: Yeah, that was special, and I will say I think there was some bribery on Saturday mornings too, <laughs> because. Yeah, they we and if you ask my brother and sister, they will probably recall this as well. Saturday morning, he would take us to the Victory Market, which was, which was up the road in uh, Bridgeport, New York, and he would buy us cookies. Now, my mother did not condone this. Um, she obviously <laughs> probably was like, "Jimmy, don't feed them sugar because then you're going to be going to the track, and I'm going to be stuck I'd with kids." <laughs> Um, but that was really special too, you know, and I remember my father obviously loved auto racing. It was such a huge part of his life. And you're right when, you know, he would work all day, he would come home. I remember he would sit down for dinner and then boop right back up and out to the shop. I mean, he was very dedicated. Um, so it was special anytime we got to spend with him, but Yes, those family times on the weekends when we got it uh, with him were very special, you know, um, going up to my Grandma Helen's. And, yeah, I mean, it just makes you appreciate those moments even more.
1: And, and and yet this whole persona that he had, this whole career that he had, and he was doing so many things between yeah. supers and modifieds and dirt modifieds and then sprint cars and, and all of the things that were going on, um Did you ever kind of look at what he was doing and kind of go, well, I don't really get it, but I'm glad he's having fun?
2: Yeah, um, he was doing what he loved, which I think now as an adult I can so appreciate because I think for him he loved his family beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, I never saw from my perspective as a child. My mother may have a different perspective. (laughs) It wasn't him ever choosing racing over us. I think it was, here was something that he loved to do and he made time in his life to do it. And I think now as an adult, I really appreciate that because I think, you know, life's so busy and, um, we don't necessarily as adults take time to do the things that we enjoy and do the things that we love. So I think that kind of left a lasting impression on me that, you know, here was something he really enjoyed and he made time in, in his busy life to do it. So kudos to him for that.
1: How much uh, travel time did you have with him when he would go to the tracks? Did he often take the family or just sometimes or how did that work? Cause obviously yeah. he ran a lot of out of town shows in different divisions.
2: Yeah, just sometimes, Tom. Um, Again, I think for the most part, we weren't at the track, especially when he would go out of town. Um, That was not necessarily trips that we made often, and I'm sure we made them. But, again, my recollection as a less than 10-year-old is not, you know, um, as detailed as I wish it were. Yeah. So, but, again, you know, I think the memories that we have, you know, myself, my sister, and my brother – Are very sacred. And I think that's something that we hold really close to our hearts. That we share our dad openly um, and graciously with a lot of people. But there are certainly moments that are, you know, from a family perspective, that we hold really near and dear to our hearts because. That was few and far between. So everybody, you know, was getting a piece of him, and that's one tiny little piece that um, is nice just to save for ourselves.
1: Do you have uh, a particular story or two that you feel you, you, you would like to share with us about, uh, about Jimmy and about, uh, you know, him as a dad or you know, whether it's racing-related or not? Is there, are there some things that you could share with us that would help us uh, get uh, a, a bit of a glimpse into who Jimmy was?
2: Yeah, well, for me, I was 10 um, when he passed, and my sister was seven, my brother was four. So for me, probably one of my fondest memories is, um, because I was probably the oldest, I think I was allowed in the shop more than, than the younger kids. So I had a big wheel's. Um, and boy, did I run that thing through that shop. I probably drove my father and the crew crazy (laughs) with it, but they were so, I remember them being so tolerant. Like, you know, here I was, you know, like getting dirty and eating cookies and my neighbor would come across you know, that lived across the street and we would ride our big wheels through the garage. And I'm sure we were a big pain in the butt, but (laughs) he was very gracious with letting us do that. So that was always really fun. Um, I can remember him even like, you know, showing me how a wrench worked. And I was really excited, like, oh, Dad's going to teach me how to work on the car, and I'm going to be just like him. Um, (laughs) That obviously never happened. I was still too little. But, you know, when he would put the car up on the lift, I remember him letting, you know, me and even my sister and brother sit in the car when they put it up on the lift. And that was just a cool feeling because here was this guy who was busy innovating and working on the car, but he still took those moments to make us feel special. So that was certainly, you know, one thing. Um, I remember my dad's 40th birthday party at our house and it feels like we had a bazillion people there. But just that feeling of family and friendship and love, and that was something that really stood out to me too. So, you know, he took me fishing, he taught me how to drive a snowmobile. Oh wow. Um, Yeah, there was a lot of non-race related things that he taught me, even, you know, though I was young, that I'll never forget. And those were special moments.
1: Now, I have to ask, because you've just sat here and described um, how much you loved be- running a big wheel through the garage. You loved uh, learning how to use a wrench, thinking maybe you would work on the car and do what your dad did. You talked about learning to ride a snowmobile. Um, yeah. I have to ask, was there ever a moment when you-, you thought, gee, I wonder if I'd like to race? Did that ever cross your mind?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I will tell you, if my dad had not passed, I probably would have gotten in a race car at some point in my really? life. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. I-, I think it's one of those things. It's like in your blood, um, whether it's genetics that gets passed on or or what have you. But you know, for me, obviously, I was ten when my dad passed. My mother would not have ever allowed me after <laughs> what happened to my dad to yeah. put my butt in a race car. So it never came to fruition, but absolutely, if I if if my dad had not passed, I definitely think I would have ended up in some type of fast-moving vehicle at some point in my life.
1: That's <laughs> funny. Um, now, do do you still hear from uh, fans, or do you ever? I mean, do do you still kind of? Uh, keep in touch in in ways, or um, you know, are you are you still kind of getting that conversation? Do you run into people that say, "Hey, I just you know want to talk to you about your dad for a little bit"? I mean, because I know yeah. I can talk about Jimmy twenty four seven, and and uh, that, I mean, it, tell just stories from my perspective, but I and yeah. I've got to believe I'm not alone here. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and that's the amazing part, I will say, Tom, is I'm always so moved. You know, we don't go up to Oswego Speedway often. Over the past couple of years, we've gone up there, you know, probably less than a handful of times. But the Teresies were very gracious. They let us do a fundraiser up there for the organization that we're involved in, Mm -hmm. Families Fighting Flu. And, you know, I had my pine shirt on and boy, when people find out who you are, they want to tell you stories, which is awesome and amazing. And, you know, it just, again, gives me that glimpse into how people viewed my dad and how much they loved him. And, you know, he wasn't just a race car driver. And I especially love the people um, who stopped me and go, When I was a kid, I was your dad's biggest fan. And boy, I would run into the pit and he would take time to talk to me. And just knowing how gracious he was with the younger kids is just so heartwarming. So, yeah, I mean, I can't tell you. I couldn't even put it's priceless. You could not put a dollar sign on the memories that people so graciously share with
1: us. Well, I, I, I gotta tell you all those people that tell you that they were Jimmy's biggest fan, they're all lying to you. Cause I'm Jim- <laughs> I was Jimmy's yeah. biggest fan. Um, I'm and, and uh, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> <laughs> they're all lying. Um, and, but, but you know what they're in, in all seriousness, they're right. And, and his graciousness, because the one thing that, that Jimmy did, that nobody else, except for Warren Conium, they were the only two, but Jimmy was first, that ever learned my name and would call me by my name when I would yeah. go. Jimmy knew who I was. He would, you know, yeah. squat down because I wish I'm still short, but he would squat down and, and uh, you know, and kind of just talk to me like he actually cared about me, you right. know, And and it wasn't right. that the other drivers weren't nice to me. They just weren't.
2: That way, you know, it wasn't. Exactly,
1: Jimmy was, um, you know, just that kind of a of a person, and and just to watch the work that he put in and then later, you know, a little later when I found out that he was speaking in schools and then as an adult yeah. um, that he actually came to my school one day and drove two hours through a blizzard to find out that school was closed and nobody crushing enough cell phones then and but and, and just, you know, no problem, when do you want me back? That kind of 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 generosity of time and 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 that kind of desire to use his platform for good is, is something that I teach to every single racer that, that I work with or coach or mentor. I tell them all about Jimmy and and I teach them, you know, how to, he's kind of my, my role model for this is how you treat your fans. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's changed. I, th- I, I just feel like that's how you want to treat people, and Jimmy was always yeah. that way. Uh,
2: yeah. You know? Well, and it, it rings true in the stories that I hear, Tom, right? Because people will say just, they'll share exactly what you just shared. Yeah. Like, he knew my name. Yes. He took the time to talk to me. You know, he always invited me over to the house, because I will say, I remember, you know, there was always somebody in that shop wasn't just my dad out there. Hardly ever was he alone. It was always, you know, people coming and going. But that's, I think, exactly what makes my heart feel so warm and fuzzy is that he made people feel like they were seen and that they mattered. And I think that's so important, just not even as a racer with your fans, but, you know, as human beings to really – let people know how important they are. So that's really lovely that I hear that repeated over and over again.
1: Well, and I think, you know, what it really shows you is that it's not so much the accomplishments. Obviously, they're legendary, too. But what really lasts are the relationships that you build. And the Absolutely. way that you, you know, that you impact a person's life and, you know, right. your dad, I, you know, you, you hear drivers talk about him. I mean, I, you know, I think back to when, you know, he let Steve Joya run this brand new car that he just built. And he'd never raced and he's giving him that car to race knowing that it, there's a, at least a chance that Steve could use that car to beat him for a track championship. But he wanted right. Steve, you know, and, and some have told me that. Perhaps it was his way that he respected Steve enough in terms of what Steve understood about the the race cars themselves that he was kind of, um, look, take this, go drive it. And and, and it was almost a, um, you know, build one of these, come on, you can do this, build one of these cars and play, you know, um, that maybe it was a bit more than just a generous offer and who really knows, but... um, you know those kinds of things that Jimmy did, uh, you know, as a, as a racer in a competition sense, you you just don't see very often um, in the sport right. anymore. You know, um, right. Now, right. did you ever get to know any other uh, of the other drivers' kids in the in the few times you were there? Are there are there relationships that you built that you kind of still
2: not. Really, no. to be honest, I'm thinking back, and again, because I wasn't at the track very much, um, not really. I remember the booths. you know, when Clyde Booth, um, yep. his car, the 89, I remember we did things as families together, you know, us in the booth. So I, I remember um, Clyde Booth and his family and his three kids. But beyond that, you know, I, I think certainly acquaintances where people, I would know their names, yeah. other kids, and... In like that, but again, because we weren't up there on a regular basis, um, I don't remember forming any, you know, substantial relationships yeah. beyond, again, just kind of knowing who one another were, kind of hanging out every now and then.
1: It's uh, it it definitely was a magic time, I think, in yeah. so many people's lives, and certainly, sure. um, you know, your dad accomplished. Um, more in a short amount of time than, you know, almost any other driver I think I've ever seen. And even if you if you add the fact that, you know, not only did he do what he did on the track, but also building cars, revolutionizing the division and, right. and you know, all of that. I think he he will forever probably stand alone in, in uh, Oswego Speedway and super modified h- history for that sort of total package of being able to to do what he did and I'm sure that has to be something that uh, you hold in the in the highest uh, esteem. Yes,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean his, his, um, his records stand for themselves but you know also at the same time records are meant to be broken and you know there's a lot of great drivers out there. Yeah. I don't necessarily follow it. Nowadays, um, for me there's and I'm sure many of you guys, there's always somebody missing out there. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of that bittersweet where you go and you're oh, like, yeah. I, I still love the yes. smell when yes. I go and I sit in the stands and you feel that excitement, but for me it's different. And I'm sure for a lot of people it's different. You yeah. know, those of you that watched my dad. But there's a lot of great drivers and I think Even though, you know, many of my dad's records still stand, at one point in the future, they could be broken, and that's okay, you know? Yep. Um, the, The innovation has to keep moving forward. You're right. My father did a lot of it, and... I'm glad that that happened, and I'm glad he gets recognized for that. But I think he would probably be the first one who would say to all the other drivers and mechanics and car owners, like, you guys got to keep moving forward. And I think they are, you know? Yeah. Um, so he would want everybody to be continuing to excel and innovate.
1: Well, um, we certainly have been grateful for a few minutes to spend with you. And I, I think that one of the beautiful things that I've discovered about motorsports over the years is that as much as I love the on-track racing, I think I love the family aspect of it more. And I think all of yeah. us would love to know how your mom is doing and how, you know, you're doing and, you're, and your brother and sister are doing. How, how are things uh, with the family?
2: Yeah. So, well, I'm doing well. I actually run a uh, national nonprofit called Families Fighting Flu. Yep. So um, I lost my five-year-old son yes, uh, in 2009 due to flu. So, yes. unfortunately, a flu influenza is my life now, and it has been for a long time. Yeah. But um, it gives us a chance, you know, my immediate family, my husband and my daughter, um, a chance to honor our son, Joseph, and right. you know, that, that keeps us going. Uh, my sister is a very successful artist down in New Orleans oh. and she continues to do really wonderful, creative things. And it's, it's nice to kind of see that How difference cool. in her where I've kind of had a strong science background and I was an environmental scientist for many years and now oh, okay. running a national nonprofit. And my sister is very creative. Um, and doing quite well in New Orleans. And then my brother is, um, I, you know, he is super smart like my dad. Not to say yeah. my sister and I are intelligent, but my brother um, very much so reminds us of our dad. And he's very successful, works in the financial field, and lives in new york city say, and right my so. mom actually um her health isn't great she has alzheimer's she's had oh. alzheimer's for several years so um so sorry you know the the sad thing about that is all of um all of her memories are going away and yeah. i think there's still so much mm. like my sister and my brother and i don't know um so that's kind of sad you know not only to see her go through that Yeah. But also to know that we're losing those memories that kind of reside in her brain that may not have made their way out, um, you know, to us yet. So she's hanging in there, but, um, you know, it life is, life happens. And yeah. these are things that unfortunately aren't, um, not every story can have a, a happy ending. But, you know, we're, I think the, the moral of the story, my dad, my mom, my son is that, you know, um, every moment we are given is a gift and we really need to make the most of it and appreciate the people and the things that are in our lives
1: well I couldn't think of a better way to uh, to end that uh, and and uh, a very important life lesson and uh, I want to thank you for taking some time our our prayers uh, to you and and the family and certainly uh, for your mom as well uh, you know we we just pray uh, for each of you and keep you in our hearts every day and we uh, we love that uh, we had the chance to uh, get to know your dad, and uh, for those of us who grew up with your dad as our our hero, um, that continues and it always will. Um, you know, we we just uh, I don't I can't imagine Oswego Speedway history without Jimmy Champagne in it, and um, I just think that uh, the opportunity to sit down and and uh, talk every once in a while about uh, uh, the drivers who who kind of made the, the track and made our youth really, especially those right. of us for that generation made our youth so special. Um, is just an amazing one. So thank you very much, Cerise, for uh, um, your coming on and sharing your stories. And, and um, keeping us uh, kind of uh, thinking about your dad. And, again, our our thoughts and prayers are with uh, you all, with your mom, and and for uh, good health for yourselves as well going forward. And uh, we look forward to hopefully touching base with you again down the road sometime.
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity, Tom, and thank you for sharing all your special memories of dad as well because uh, you're right. That that keeps the, the memories going, and it really is heartwarming to know that, he is still so loved by so many people.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, may God bless you and your family, and we'll uh, we'll talk again soon. That is Cerise Murata, and we'll be back with more of a very special Insight Groove right after this.
4: He wanted to be known for doing his best. right. His best made him Major League Baseball's most valuable player. Strike two. He played in six World Series and was elected to the Hall of Fame. Although an honest man, he was best at
1: stealing holes.
4: Save. But the best quality of Jackie Robinson's life was his character.
1: Welcome back to this really special edition of Inside Groove. I hope that you enjoyed the interviews with Ed Close and Cerise Murata. And I thank them from the bottom of my heart, both of them, for their time and being a part of this special show. Um, Jimmy Champagne was my very first racing hero. When I decided to do this show... I really didn't want to focus so much on the statistics as I did on the big picture accomplishments, but more so the memories of who he was and how he was as a driver, as a friend, as a teammate, as a, you know, as, as a dad. And I, I, I sat down and I started making some notes for what I knew would be this this last segment and I couldn't help but realize and really get the full gravity of what Jimmy Champagne accomplished in just the period from the time that I started going in 1973 until uh, 1982, which was his last year in racing and with us. Um, And I just, I think back to the beginning for me in 1973 and, and the eight ball being the first car that I picked out on the first night that I went. And I know it was early in the season because Ronnie Wallace was still driving the 10 pins for Swifty. My dad was always a Nolan Swift fan and he would always, uh, you know, cheer for Swifty. And so he pointed out that that was Ronnie in Swifty's Tin pins. So I remember that. I actually was going through my programs the other day um, because Brian Cavalier was kind enough to uh, help me with some of the programs that he had, extras that I didn't have the um, the issues of each year or whatever. And so I decided to just go ahead and organize my programs by year and by um, issue number, I guess you'd call it. Um, and I was going through, so I've started going through them and reading through them again year by year. And when I went through the 73 ones, I was actually trying to figure out if I could remember or deduce which race early in that year might have been the first race that I went to. But Jimmy won a few of them early on. He had a little bit of a win streak going on in early 73. He always, that was one of his real characteristics, is he always came out of the box strong in the opening part of the season And I think that really would be part and partial, at least, due to the diligence with which he prepared. He didn't wait until a month or so or two months before the season to get things going. He worked through the winter and was ahead of the game and was really ready to go when opening day came. And I think that's why he was so good in the uh, opening races, in the early races of the season, and then sometimes he would hit a slump in the middle of it. But um, he was always prepared out of the box. So I couldn't really figure out which race would have been the first race, but I know it was uh, part the early part of the year. And I just remember the the colors on the cars The shapes of the cars, the sound of the cars. There weren't mufflers yet, so they were loud. Um, The styles of the cars, just the... It was sensory overload every week. It was just such a shot of adrenaline, and I just... I mean, I think drumming was the first thing that I probably could say I fell in love with because my dad had a drum set. And so I picked up the drums before I picked up racing, started playing drums at three, didn't go to the races till I was five. So I guess drumming would have been my first love, but racing quickly became, um, it, it it was either or really. If I wasn't doing one, I was probably doing the other. Um. So I spend as much time in my summer days racing my matchbox cars and announcing those races and keeping points for those races. Once I got a little, you know, five, six, seven where I could write, I was always a good reader. So I, I, the program was an obsession. I mean, that was, it was my life then. And, and Jimmy was my first racing hero. He was the guy. I loved All the drivers, they're all nice to me, but Jimmy and then uh, Warren Conium as well. And I think, again, because part of what made those two different, at least for me, is that they learned my name. So they would call me by name. and, And they just made you feel like you were the most important person to them in that moment, whenever they were... Um, interacting with you, signing an autograph, talking to you, Jimmy would, you know, ask me, you know, did we do good enough? Did I do good enough for you? You know, how did you like the races? Warren would basically would be the same thing. I remember, I remember one time. This is really not a Jimmy story, but I I, I, I just thought of it, and it's kind of funny. Um, I was in. I think it might have been phase drug. Um, my mother and I were in there and, and she had bought something and I bought probably a, I'm, I'm assuming it was a matchbox car. Cause that would have been all I probably would have bought with, with whatever allowance or whatever little money I had at, at any time when you're like six or seven years old. But I remember we ended up in line behind Warren and it was just like, I remember in the moment just feeling so kind of like, I guess somebody would if you know, you, you sort of get starstruck. And and I, I was like, it was just a strange thing. Um, I just remember, but he was again, you know, so nice to us. Um, it, but Jimmy was, Jimmy was the top of the mountain for me. And, you know, I, I think as I've grown up and, and become an adult, um, you know, and you, and you kind of have more time to look back and you kind of become more aware of all the work that goes into race cars and putting on races and racing and races and all that. You just kind of see the whole picture. Um, I think I've realized that n- there may be nobody who has had the impact in a about a 10 year to 12 year period not just of a speedway or super modifieds but short track racing in general there may be nobody who's had the the deep broad impact if you think about What Jimmy did, I mean, and again, I'm starting with this is during my years of uh, those of you who are slightly more experienced than me, um, not to call you old, but who, who, who saw Jimmy's whole career from the sixties on from start to finish are just extremely blessed. And I feel blessed to have just been able to see from '73 forward. I've, I'm not a big stat guy, but I couldn't, I could not resist making some notes here because when you think about, the, I mean, Jimmy, it wasn't even about his 87 feature wins, which is still the all-time. He's still the guy, right? Nobody's caught him. And nobody probably ever will. I, I I just, I mean, Joe and Otto may race a little while longer, but I don't know that you're getting to 87. I mean, that's just it's it's amazing, really. And um, he did all of it in about a 15 year period, which was incredible. But it's not even just the 87 wins for me. Um. He did something in 1974 that until literally I was putting this show together and making notes, I didn't even stop to think about the fact that he did. Jimmy Champagne hit a triple crown at Oswego Speedway in 1974 that has never been done before or since, and it never will. He won... The track championship, the classic, and the modified 200 all in the same year. That's incredible. Absolutely mind boggling. Just beyond comprehension in my mind that somebody could accomplish that feat. You'll never see that again because you never, first of all, just winning the championship and the classic would be an amazing accomplishment but you don't have drivers kind of cross-pollinating between different divisions as much so I don't think you'll ever see that again um but that that's not all um I think of the battles in 75 the, the we had nine different maybe ele- I think it was 11 at the end different winners in 1975 and Jimmy didn't always win that year, and he he ended up not even winning the track championship because Ronnie Wallace beat him out, but that was one of the greatest track championship battles in the history of the Oswego Speedway, in my opinion. It went right down to the final night, and again, Ronnie, I will never forget. I can picture this as if it happened this morning. Ronnie Wallace going to the outside and passing Jimmy Champagne, coming to the finish line on the last lap to win. I will never forget the crowd reaction to that. And my father, I never saw him leave his feet at a racetrack. He was jumping up and down. He was so excited for his friend. He and Ronnie were friends, and he was so excited for that. Um, And honestly, I can, even when I was younger, I always... I remember Freddie Graves got the first win with his roadster that year, his little front engine car that I loved so much that he built by beating Jimmy in traffic. You just didn't do that. That just wasn't done very often. You know, it it was uh it was awesome to watch that battle. Kempton Date's holding Jimmy off in a in a furious battle to get his first career feature win. Um you know these guys' races that Jimmy had. I think there was one race um, in '76 with Steve Joya, where I think, in fact, I think it was the spring championship. Steve Steve had him. Jimmy got him back. I think Steve got him again, and then Jimmy passed him back. Um, that was Steve had won a cup, won two races in '75, and and by '76 he was considered a legitimate threat to win the championship and oh boy who could ever forget jimmy brings out the car that would literally change what a super modified is forever and doesn't race it the only driver to race that car that year was jimmy's closest rival for the track championship Steve Joya, on the very final points night. Think about the generosity and the sportsmanship of that and the respect that Jimmy had to have felt for Steve Joya to be, to be compelled after Steve got in an accident with his own car and warm-ups and would have been out for the night. Jimmy didn't want to win the championship that way. He wanted to at least give Steve a fighting chance. So he offers him the brand new race car that he himself had never raced, knowing full well that there was at least a chance that that car could beat him for the track championship. Of course, Jimmy won and Steve finished well, but not well enough, of course. And Jimmy ended up winning the title. And then Jimmy tried to pay him a percentage. And Steve, of course, refused. um, But again... That's who Jimmy was. That's what Jimmy champagne was about in 1977. He waits until about mid season until I was at Pocono (laughs) for my first ever NASCAR race. I told my mother before I left, my sister and brother-in-law were taking me to the, to the cup race, grand national race back then, I think, or maybe it was Winston cup. I can't remember. Um, but I wanted to go, of course, but I told her, I said, I remember standing in the hall at our house as I was getting ready to go that morning, waiting for my sister to pick me up. I told her, you watch, I'm going to be gone, and Jimmy's going to win in his, run his new eight ball, and he's going to win. You wait. I know it's going to happen. And we got a call at the in the hotel room Saturday night after the races, and uh, sure enough, I said, who won? My mother said, Jimmy in his new eight ball. All I could do was start laughing. Um, little side note, that was also the night Eddie Bellinger drove Tommy Leeson's car. His 0-2 had some problems, drove the 97, I think finished 6th or 7th with it. Really nice drive. Uh, but I didn't have to wait too long to see Jimmy win in his new eight ball. He did it the next week too. And then who could forget? Uh, The end of the year, again, the sportsmanship aspect. Jimmy had become friends with Daryl Peckham, who also was a supermodified racer at Oswego in the 70s, um, early 70s. And uh, not only had Daryl let Jimmy run his car a couple of times in 74, which I remember very well, uh, it was, you know, it was not the newest car Not to say it was a bad car, but Jimmy, the first time, eh, not so great. But the second time he had to run it, he was very competitive. I think he finished fourth in a pretty loaded heat race and um, ran pretty well in the feature as well. And Daryl had also helped the Champagne family through uh, some some tragedy. Daryl was a psychologist and... Um, he and Jimmy were great friends. So Jimmy in 1977, uh, ended up giving Daryl the opportunity of a lifetime. He took Daryl along with this young kid named Doug Hevron, who (laughs) his father was going to buy the car, the, uh, the Roadster wedge, as it was known early, um, for Dougie for 78. I don't know if he'd bought it yet, but they ended up buying it. But Jimmy, uh, Jimmy took Doug and Daryl to Fulton and let them test the car and get some laps. And um, Jimmy allowed Daryl to run the car at Thompson in the uh, World Series race that year, at the end of the season. And Daryl came from the back of the field, and I believe he finished seventh, if my memory is correct. Um, but it was somewhere between about fifth and seventh. And just a great drive. And I can remember reading about the fact that Jimmy was really more excited for Daryl to have been able to have that drive and that opportunity than he was for himself. And I think he won. Um, but he, he just was so confident that Daryl could do it. And I can only imagine uh, maybe – if I can track Daryl down, maybe we'll we'll give him a chance to come on the show at some point. I'd love to talk to Daryl anyways, a nice guy. Um, and uh, to be able to talk about that moment, because I can only imagine that it was uh, a pretty special moment for him to be able to do that. And uh, again, just uh, leading to 1978. Again, these accomplishments, some of these stories... It isn't about the stat. It's about the sportsmanship or the, the magnitude of the impact that Jimmy had and the gestures that, that he extended to people. Um, 13 feature wins in 1978. Unbelievable. Uh, didn't win the track championship because he had motor issues and double point shows, but, boy, did, did he dominate that season. 1979, comes out with a rear engine. And almost from the first time he put it into competition, it was winning fast. I think he had a Magneto issue at one point while he was leading um, or running in the top three. I think he did finish third. And then of course he had the bad crash when uh, something broke and he broke his foot and came back the very next week in the front engine car with a doctor's note. Uh, And, Proved that he could get in and out of the car, okay. So they allowed him to race. And he goes out and wins. He and Steve Joya split twin thirties or thirty fives, whatever they were then. Um, and then the rear engine car comes back. Jimmy finally wins with it. And then we all know what happened in the classic. I mean, that was a, a car that that was a type of car that I think most people in the seventies thought. Well, if someone ever gets it right, but, but except for the one feature win that Johnny Spencer had with the car he and Doug Duncan built, I think that was all the way back in 1970, we hadn't had a rear-engine car win other than the four-wheel-drive car that Bill Hype built and Freddie Graves drove. But I think that you can credit the four-wheel-drive part of that with the way that that car ran. Um, Bill had a few cars that he built that ran a Swiggo with various drivers and some of them were fast, but they just didn't, they weren't durable. They weren't reliable. Um, they, they just didn't have, they, they were thought to be very fragile. And so I can remember Jimmy throughout his career I remember him. Ed Close talked about. I I wanted to to hear Ed detail uh, Jimmy's interest in the side engine car, the mid engine car, the '69 that Close had. But I remember Jimmy. I remember him hot lapping Nolan Swift's car at least once in 1974. Uh, once the, the when he brought out the new car in '76, his last car, um, trying to help him to get it figured out, sorted out. And then I think he also was in it once in 77 as well. Um, But I remember him spending time hot lapping Mike Schroberlein's first car, uh, first uh, front engine super. And I remember him previous to that being in Warren Schroberlein's rear engine car, uh, which was built by Kevin Reap, who helped Jimmy with his rear engine car um again jimmy jimmy w- always was thinking he was the consummate engineer he was really the again not just helping anybody he could to get their car sorted out, but also just thinking about and and trying to figure out what can we do with this i think and and what could I do with the rear engine car um I remember a conversation, Ivor the Driver, in one of his columns in maybe 74, saying that Jimmy, he had heard Jimmy was thinking about a rear-engine car. And, you know, I don't know if that was true, but, again, what if? (laughs) What if he builds one for 75? What happens? Um, But, again, the magnitude of the impact and the accomplishments in 1980 he leaves super modified racing full-time in order to go play with sprint cars it was a form of racing he would never played with um but really wanted to try it and i think people wondered if his driving style would work in a sprint car you really have to horse those things they're not you know, you can't make those handle pretty. It's a very, you know, kind of, um, it's a very aggressive type of racing. And, and Jimmy managed to figure out how to win. And he managed to go to Pennsylvania and impress even the posse guys at tracks like Williams Grove that are sprint car racing a war. He comes back to Oswego Speedway for the 1980 Classic and leads every single lap. Incredible. Again, that record's never been equaled. Some have come close, but nobody's nobody's done it. Um, Goes to Syracuse with a sprint car, and I don't remember if this was 80 or 81. I think it might have been 1980. Runs third with the World of Outlaws. Again, that's not something that you just do. You finish third in the World of Outlaw race, you've done something comes back in '81. Doug Havron, his his protege, is now basically the hot hand at the track. He comes back, and they sit on the front row together for the classic. Unfortunately, it wasn't a great race for Jimmy. But um, and then, of course, we know about 1982, teaming up with Clyde Booth um, again, engineering putting chassis flex into the new car that they built, and and tipping the seat, so he's actually sitting sideways in the car in order to make it more comfortable when you're at speed, but also, I think, just that little bit of extra left side weight kind of thing, Um, he was always thinking, his mind was always working, and the, the depth of his accomplishments on the dirt in the earlier part of the 70s, winning bunches of features at Weedsport and rolling wheels, and I think even maybe a championship, I don't remember, but he he won at least one, I think, at the the wheels in that time frame. Um, In the pavement modifieds with his own car and with Ed Close's car later, winning races around at Oswego and, and other tracks and being so competitive for so long with the super modifieds, of course he not only revenu- revolutionized the, the car once but twice had they not banned the rear engine it is likely that we probably would have seen a number of rear engines and who knows where that might have went though um again it can probably be debated if he'd perfected the art so to speak but he certainly got it to be fast enough to uh to win races. That's for sure. And, and I've heard some stories from some people who are close to him that maybe he might've hoped it might've taken a little longer because he really wanted the challenge of trying to solve that puzzle. And maybe he was a little disappointed because it ran so well so quickly for him, part of the fun was, was the perfection of, of, of a piece was, was finding the secret and, and, and making something fast. And I think that, you know, that was part of the thrill for, for Jimmy more so than just winning races and, and, and trophies. I think he was, he was really about the engineering side and, and, Again, just thinking about all of that, thinking about all of the races that he won at other tracks, not just in supers, but in other cars over that period of time, has anybody ever had a 10-year period where they were so competitive and so integral to the very foundation of Di- of multiple divisions of motorsports that that Jimmy had, um, certainly not in you know East Coast or short track racing that I can think of, and and a lot of the accomplishments just will never be equaled. You'll never see anybody do that because uh, so much specialization today. You don't have drivers crossing between divisions. You aren't seeing. You know, I run on dirt on Friday and Sunday and Oswego on Saturday. You're not seeing I run supers and modified. You don't see that sort of thing. The impact that he had on the number of drivers over that period with his knowledge and his friendships and his willingness to help them and lift them up, um, the impact that he had on the tracks and the race events themselves. When you when you said Jimmy Champine was going to be at your racetrack, people went. He was a he was a draw. He and Nolan Swift were the first two, I would argue, drivers to figure out the whole PR kind of thing, and they did a lot of it. And they also understood the nature of putting on a show. They knew. What they were doing, when they were having all those side by side battles. I mean, I remember the night the night that they ran triple 33s. I think it was the last night that they ran them in 1974. Jimmy won them all and Swifty was second in them all. <laughs> I mean, it was literally that that literally could have been a moment in a time capsule that was the passing of the torch, so to speak from Nolan Swift to Jimmy Champagne could be said to have occurred that night. Um, And Jimmy, just the magnitude of his impact, his presence, um, the way that he treated his competitors and his fans, the way that he gave his time away from the track to go speak at schools like my elementary school Uh, no, it wasn't my classroom, darn it. Uh, but drove two hours through a blizzard one time to my elementary school to speak, got there and found out they'd closed the schools an hour earlier, didn't have cell phones or anything back then. So he just, uh, apologized or or shrugged it off and, and said, when do you want me back? And, uh, went, came back and, and did what he said he would do. Um, He just, it was the consummate archetype of what a race car driver ought to be, in my opinion, still to this day. And so that's why, as I work with younger racers and teach them about promotion and marketing and attitude and how to approach the mental approach to to being a racer and driving a race car, I always tell them about Jimmy and use Jimmy as kind of that, that, case study because it was jimmy's impact on me that that really made me love racing to begin with and and so i teach all of the drivers to to do things the way jimmy did them and you know to 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 keep the grades up to work hard in school to um put the time in in the shop to you know all of that because that's all how jimmy got to where he got and accomplished what he did. And yet there was that one day of the week, as you heard Cerise talk about Sundays were for family. So Jimmy never forgot who he was. He never forgot how he got there. He never forgot his family. He never got the big head. He never, he just never strayed from the character that he had. Um, Again, uh, the impact. Will we ever see that again? Probably not. Will some of the records ever be broken? Probably not. Will we ever see a driver win the track championship, the classic and the modified 200 in the same year? Probably not. Um, you know, those are things that, that just, he didn't, Jimmy didn't do little things. He did huge things. And, That's how I'm going to remember Jimmy Champine. Of all the great drivers, all the great men, all the great people, I was fortunate enough to be able to watch race at the Oswego Speedway in my early years and even still to today. Jimmy Champagne stands still on the top of the mountain above all of them, at least for me. And September 4th, 1982 was the night that for all of us who loved Jimmy, who admired Jimmy, who cheered for Jimmy, who appreciated Jimmy in any way, a part of us died that night. Never to be replaced. I'm thankful that I still maintain the enthusiasm to keep going and going to the track and... and, and All of that, but there isn't a day. There's not a single day that I don't, at some point, at some moment, and thankfully I get to kind of still live some of that through Keith, who I've known since he was five and just a great guy. And uh, he and Ed are are amazing people, Um, great friends of mine, and thankful that Keith gets to carry on the family name, so to speak. And, uh, but there's not a day that I don't cross into the infield or sit in the grandstands at Oswego that I don't in some way look back and remember Jimmy Champagne. And I feel like of all the things that he accomplished in terms of on the track statistics that may be the best way to remember him or the best way to illustrate how much he meant to me and to others. I've got two trophies that Rich Mako had either won or or bid on and won uh, at, at an auction at some point. One is uh, Jimmy's modified 200 trophy from 1972. Uh, I think it was 72. Um, and... The other one was uh, – the other one is his uh, Fast Qualifier Award, um, I think 1977, yeah, from from the uh, the classic. Um, and so those two trophies sit on a table in my office with uh, some other collectibles that I admire along with a couple of uh, die-cast modifieds that came – in, in the matched modified sets that came out a while back. I've got it's Jimmy's coupe and his, uh, his uh, Pinto and just love those cars. Absolutely love those cars. Love those trophies. And they sit in my office at the radio station in a, in a, in a, in a, in a place where when I'm sitting at my desk working, I can look at them at all times. Um, so again, I think that's the best way I can pay tribute and to remember my first racing hero is to um, to explain and to um, talk about how much impact he had on people in his life um, and not just the racing stats. And I don't know that we'll ever see another Driver, who will have that kind of a lasting impact. And again, what more could be said? I'm going to wrap it up. I thank you for listening to this show. I thank all of you for your support of this show. Thank you again to Ed Close and to Cerise for their generosity of time and uh, for the stories that they told us. Uh, Thank you to uh, Jeff West and IPC Indy, to uh, Rich Worth and JNS Paving, and, of course, to Sean and his staff at uh, Skip's Fish Fry for sponsoring this show and supporting this show. Uh, Thank you to uh, all of you, and I wish you all a very safe and blessed weekend. Look forward to coming back. With Inside Groove, episode 65, very soon. Have a great weekend, everybody. So long.
0: You've been listening to Inside Groove, powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Find them on the web at www.ipcindy.com. Inside Groove is a Race Chaser Media production. For more exciting and passionate motorsport content, follow Race Chaser Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and visit RaceChaserMedia.com. The opinions expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff, management, affiliates, or marketing.